This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. special guest joining us on yes. Subliminal Jihad, um, somebody whose work we've referenced before, mm-hmm. I think in our Polanski episode, definitely. Yeah. But yeah. we if have not, with us... other times, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot uh, yeah. of his other work is very relevant to the things we've talked about. I just read uh, Prisoner of Infinity uh, recently in preparation for this episode, um, and I was, yeah, just impressed by all the residences that are there in addition to 16 maps of hell, which we had read before. Absolutely. Um, yes. And 16 maps of hell, which we've read from before and, uh, is definitely a really great, um, dive into Hollywood susness, the superculture, secret societies, etc. We have with us author Jason Horsley. Jason, are you there? Hello, here I am. Hi, <laughs> how's it going? Yeah, still, still going. That's all I know. Time's running yeah. out, but I'm still here. Beautiful. All right. Well, I've been—I was actually been a listener of your podcast, uh, which I don't know if, if it's on hiatus right now, but the Liminalist, right? Mm. Um, for several years, and I think. Um, I feel like you were definitely dialed into a lot of very interesting subjects, uh, some of which we have touched on. But we yeah, just, I, think I think our respect for the market share of the liminalist is why we're not called liminal jihad or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, Good, but, it is. Yeah. yeah, we do share a part of the name. Yeah, <laughs> I think that that came up during our name discussions, and we mentioned, well, this podcast already uh, has the liminal. Uh, situation cornered so right uh, so you yeah. snuck under you went yeah um, exactly yeah so i think there's so many subjects i definitely uh, want to get into today and it's hard to say where to begin but i don't know maybe maybe we'll start at the most recent point with your most recent book 16 maps of hell i don't know maybe if you just want to get us going here jason uh if you want to just tell us kind of what inspired you to write this book and do this exploration of hollywood and popular culture it, it reminded me of that question 
of that. Sorry, of the, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's cut. The, the question that, that fiction writers hate most of all, I don't know if, if yeah. you guys have heard that. I know. You know what, what kind of books say? do you write? No, um, well, where do your what, ideas <laughs> from? Well, I guess I mean I feel like I sort of know from listening, uh, from listening to you and reading some of your uh, your blogs and stuff like that. Maybe I'll say just to ground people, where I first found you was you were mentioned on Twitter by the account Crypto Cuttlefish. Are you familiar with that account? It rings a bell. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a mm. memorable name, but yeah, it's some years <laughs> back, I think. They were a very uh, formative, uh, I guess, uh, paranoid Marxist poster um, in the 2010s. And I think they they linked favorably to your blog, Autoculture, one day. And then uh, that's how I discovered your podcast and uh, was really, really uh, fascinated by your discussion about things like MK Ultra, about secret societies about the kind of strange like psychic relationship that we have with entertainment media and Hollywood which you definitely get into a lot in 16 maps of hell and I don't know your explorations of kind of parasocial interactions also which I feel like is super relevant to both Hollywood and the medium of podcasting too Mm, Um, and and just the general, uh, yeah, the susness of celebrity and these uh, these almost uh, replacement Greek gods that uh, both in terms of like celebrities in Hollywood and also the characters they play, like the Marvel superheroes kind of being like a new pantheon. And um, yeah, and the the inescapability of like the matrix of ideas, like even the word matrix is like a word that's been like ruined by this matrix of ideas created by the popular culture and by Hollywood kind of in concert with, you know, the, the way that our uh, society is uh, directed into the future. I think that's a, that's a big theme, for instance, in prisoner of infinity, how these sort of like sci-fi fantasy complexes feed into the imagination of the destiny of the human race and where our sort of technological prerogatives or our social future and our imagination of, of the future needs to be directed, um, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think one, one common theme throughout my work is, is, uh, the counterfeit uncovering the counterfeit, mm-hmm. uh, which I've also called the second matrix, which is the matrix that was built by AI, uh, as, mm-hmm. uh, to be there in place when, you know, when souls in the first matrix became sufficiently sentient to start figuring out that they were in a matrix and then figuring the way out. And then they would just naturally end up uh, being drawn into the second matrix where they thought that they were actually either out or on their way out. Um, But they weren't. They They were just going actually deeper in. Well, it depends how you look at it, but potentially deeper in. Because if if your awakening gets co-opted so that uh, you go from knowing you're asleep and uh, imprisoned to thinking that you're awake, like woke culture. Then you could you could argue that you're even more imprisoned than you were before you realized that you were asleep, right? Because because yes, you, you feel like you've gone you've gone done the hero's journey and. and- yeah. yeah, Prisoner of Infinity is maybe fresher in my mind just because I've been reading it recently. But that definitely, I feel like this comes up in, in both books, you know, the sort of co-optation of like the very narrative of uh, conspiracy culture. I mean, the Matrix films 
are a good example of that. You know, they're very steep in this kind of like questioning of reality, this sort of uh, subcultural uh, insurrectionist uh, kind of uh, tendency. Uh, but, you know, it's being assimilated into and maybe what you might call like a, a second matrix, you know, and this idea manifests, I guess, in many different ways. For instance, Whitley Stryber's idea or the idea that you see a lot of the time with these these uh, kind of new age like slash conspiracy types of like after we die, you know, we see this white light. But really, we're going into a soul trap or something uh, of, of that by the light. nature. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely uh, salient in, in, in many respects, uh, something that we're sort of seeing become uh, a ubiquitous notion that like uh, there's another layer to the onion uh, in a way, you know, that we uh, think like the sort of trappings of awareness are, you know, being brought in or uh, assimilated to the sort of uh, illusion or the sort of screen experience of this, uh, you know, the superstructure of, of uh, like, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. It's even embodied in The Matrix itself because that movie came out right at this precipice, this turning point moment between kind of TV, like, audiovisual culture uh media being dominant uh transitioning into the internet being dominant and you can almost think of the entire internet as the secondary matrix that quote-unquote liberated us from the top-down empire uh kind of form of media and celebrity and things that had been set up in the 20th century and then the internet was given to us as almost this tool of liberation where yeah. it's all decentralized now it's all horizontal yeah. and if you're everybody like really can be online, a star that's how morpheus is going to like reach you just by like you know the more you're on the computer that's how you're going to get unplugged you have to like plug in to you have to plug in, in to, to unplug. To, yeah uh, yeah it's like a reformulation of tim leary's uh, good old slogan isn't it yeah. You know, uh, mm. ter- what except kind of like. Well, yeah. I, well, it's it's actually not a reformulation. It's kind of plug a, in. Yeah, it's like a reiteration in a way because like he would say like tune in, right? And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, tune in, tune in. I mean, yeah, what is yeah, tune, tune in? Like that yeah. literally is a reference to turning on a TV yeah, and watching t- it. So. Right. Tune in. Turn on. Well, curiously yeah, turn enough, turn on, tune in, drop out. Yeah. Curiously enough, this uh, this does actually speak to the book that I'm working on, which my my wife thought I should send you passages of it before today but mm-hmm. i said no, no they got enough on their plate already and we can do it later. <laughs> but, but it really is uh, i mean it's it's, it's weird because i said before we started that i was like to stay in the present whatever's currently at the end of my fork to use a william burris phrase uh and this is at the end of my fork is it's uh it's called the kubrickon and it's about my thesis is that stanley kubrick uh helped create the internet uh, in the mm-hmm. 60s, and that was the secret project he was working on, and his films were the means to, to um, uh, well, combined with the internet, his films were designed as a way to create artificial intelligence. That's basically the thesis. So the internet has always been, uh, it's always been weaponized. I mean, it didn't have to be weaponized. It was created as a weapon. We, the paranoids yeah. know that. Uh, because I mean, yes, it's it's, it's inescapable. It was created for the military, and the military create weapons. But the well, it's a it has two sides to it. One is the more aggressive side, which in terms of obviously surveillance and control. Uh, even your average person is aware of that, even though they're, they're consenting to it all the way to you know uploading themselves into the metaverse as as the. Mm-hmm 
the final step to being completely and utterly controlled. But the other the other side of that that's less recognised is the more uh, passive or the vampiric function of the internet, which is, is that yeah, it captures our attention and therefore us. But what does it do with that attention? It 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 harvests it, it siphons mm-hmm. it off. Uh, it, in terms of data, in, you know, in, in the data is the obvious way it's gathering data. But but my thesis has to do with, and it's there in sixteen maps of hell in the first few chapters as well. The the uh, merchants of attention stuff and this idea that attention has energy, and so if you can capture yes. someone's attention, you harvest the energy of their life force. Now, that, which is the matrix, right? and it's not it's not l- that easy to observe literally now because we don't have people hooked up. To the to some electrical battery, whereby every tap of the keyboard it's, sends it's kinetic coming. energy to right. <laughs> yeah. But that's a literalization or a concretization mm-hmm. of something I would say is already happening at a subtler level, which has to do with, let's say, the the internet being designed as a siphon for the attention of uh, human beings, the collective unconscious, a way to tap into the collective unconscious and and siphon it off into the um, infrastructure of, of the of the tech and thereby make our AI sentient. I mean, make artificial intelligence uh, truly sentient, I think, is the idea. I, I, I love that you yeah. bring that up because, I mean, I'm very fascinated by the this sort of drive toward like the sentient AI, which I think comes up in your work, but in particular, like the theme of attention is one that I have been... Uh, attending to like lately myself or have been uh paying attention to or has come up for me a lot lately and i think yeah i mean uh you know i want to give a shout out uh to you as like a fellow autistic person so maybe you uh also have self-identified things with maybe like hyper focus or with a, a an element of distractibility that comes into that kind of uh pathology i mean like to the extent that these aren't constructs or uh whatever you know these are just like words but in sort of older texts you know for lack of a better word like uh ascetic or, or mystical uh texts about you know uh, how to sort of a uh, techniques of self-fashioning or uh you know what Foucault might call like uh, quote-unquote like technologies of the self you know it's all about attention you know it's all about how to ensure that you're not distracted I remember you know a while ago on Jimmy's show I was talking about like a little anecdote in an old Sufi text about kind of an encounter with an entity that like, you know, really resembles a slender man. But like, regardless of that, it's, you know, kind of like a malevolent being like a a jinn. And the whole object of this entity in the anecdote is to distract the ascetic from meditating. It's all about like distraction. It's its primary goal, you know, and you see this like, you know, a pretty transcultural with the whole, uh, Acedia or the, the noonday demon, you know, that type of thing. And yeah, it does really seem like the, cultural attitude or the the cultural positioning of the idea of attention has transformed so much when really like the economy of attention was so I mean I think it is still central in a way but now like the you know the goal of the elite or you know the the goal that's being uh, sort of uh, pushed from the the higher uh, orders of society uh, is not to sort of maximize their own uh, attentional faculties but to minimize the attentional faculties of others. So whereas in the past, like the way to, you know, bring yourself to the highest level of cultivation was to make your ability to focus on a single thing as powerful as possible. Now it seems like the real like direction of society is like to make everyone else's ability to focus on a single thing 
as minimal as possible. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve, yeah, almost uh, in like a qual in a quantitative sense of just like exhausting people, burning them out. I was going to say you could uh, you could sum that up uh, very simply by uh, saying that there's, there's a one-eyed king who's making everybody blind. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Very, well uh, very appropriate. Yeah. Uh, metaphor too, uh, with the sort of one-eyed uh, figure. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think who who famously had that in their lyrics. Was that Bob Dylan? Something uh, about the one-eyed king. Uh, the cu- the culture is capturing me there, Dimitri. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Something yeah. is occurring to me. I mean, we're we're definitely free associating now, which which is good. Well, that's yeah, I enjoy that. Odd. So, yeah, and I say, you know, style for sure. What, what's um, in the present? So, last night I was listening to uh, a reading of Ru- a Rudolf Steiner lecture, uh, "The Fall of the Spirits of Darkness," and he was saying that uh, most of our thoughts are actually the corpses of entities that we're surrounded by entities who are made of thought, but it's living thought. And uh, the kind of thinking that we do, it can only happen because we've let the corpses of entities into our energy or into our awareness. I'm not quite sure how they die, but we could maybe uh, <laughs> figure that out between us, possibly. But so he's saying, Steiner was saying, is, is, is that uh, the different, he used the example, the difference between waking up in the morning, this would be fitting for Dimitri, uh, and uh, lying there and thinking I need to get up like Trinity in the matrix, get up Trinity, get up Trinity, right? There's mm-hmm. a, we need to think ourselves out of bed. The difference between that and just waking up at a certain point, getting up, you know, just the, the life force gets us out of bed and there's no thinking required. It happens before we even realize we were going to do it. Uh, and so Steiner believed that the difference between those two things was that the purely spontaneous impulsive action is when the Elohim uh, whatever we're going to translate that as. I mean, it literally means the builders, but it's like living angelic spirits, let's say, uh, move us. They move us from the outside. So there is thought, but it's coming directly from the Elohim. And we experience the thought of the Elohim as, as action, basically, as compared mm-hmm. to when we let these dead entities possess us or however that works, I don't know. And and that's thinking. And I, and I think that to bring it back, so it's not completely sort of... Uh, you know, out of nowhere, this analogy to the counterfeit and the second matrix and how, and what I've been doing with my books even, and how all of this trying to work stuff out can potentially just be a revolving door that just keeps leading us back into hell. Yes. Is that if we're referring to (laughs) the instrumentalities that have been installed in us by the dead entities or by Stanley Kubrick or by, you know, MKUltra or by Archons or, you know, whatever terminology we're going to use, it's all second matrix, really, then we're going to be hobbled. You know, we're going to, even if we get the absolute... If, even if we come up with a system of knowledge or discover a system of knowledge that represents the truth as closely as as uh, language can, it's still it's still a trap because it mm-hmm. because it's not the thing. Right, the menu is not the meal, and it and it reinforces the idea that we can think our way out out of a uh, out of a prison of thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's uh, pretty. I mean, but. Yeah, I don't know if it is possible for us to think our way out of a prison of thought. I mean, I feel like a prison of thought is really, I mean, it gets into this idea of like mind-body dualism itself. I mean, it even comes up to me when uh, you talk about the Steinarian idea that our, uh, you know, we 
are being possessed or somehow acquiring the corpses of entities that are formed of thoughts because, I mean, a corpse is a body, but thought, traditionally speaking, is like, you know, obviously there is a relationship between thought and the body because thoughts, you know, are generated in some ways by bodily processes um, and thoughts influence bodily processes in some way as well. Uh, There is some exchange, I think, between the two. But it does bring up this kind of rich and uh, very complex problem of like the idea of of a mind body or spirit body dualism. Um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like the sort of trap that's being described, I'm not sure like what the mode of escape would be. You know, it does seem like the solution would be some kind of a mystical, uh, you know, kind of a self-annihilation almost. But that is something that I think can also definitely be a trap in, in some yeah. manifestations. So, oh yeah, well, so, yeah. Speaking as the speaking as the resident Californian uh, on on the, on the pod right now, uh, that trap is those traps are ubiquitous for people that once you get past that first level of the matrix. And I know you've talked about this a lot on the Liminalist, uh, Jason. That the the New Age trap basically of you know basically you you need to get out of the kind of standard operating mindset that everyone's locked into this this kind of thought prison and you need to do tm you need to do ayahuasca you need to do mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. you need to get into entheogens and all these other things and then people pretty quickly get themselves sucked into a whole nother kind of thought prison which i i think you're right to point out might even be more dangerous because you think it's liberation and I've witnessed that a lot living in like Los Angeles that, um, you know, the seekers kind of get sought out by these secondary matrices, uh, rather quickly, or I, I don't know if it's fair to say they're, they're sort of naturally magnetically drawn to them, or if these are just like traps set up that are easy to wander into. Well, I think they, I think they, um, or we co-create them, don't we? I think that we, uh, that's, that's very much central to, to maps of hell and prisoner infinity as well, that the complicity, uh, I mean, the conspiracy depends on our complicity in, in, in ways much more subtle and nuanced than simply that we comply and we go along, but we actually, we get recruited, we get recruited. So yeah, it's, it would be impossible to separate New Age, to use that example, the New Age movement or the Entheogen blah blah movement, it would be impossible to separate um, deception and manipulation, the kind of MK Ultra shadowy hands that someone like Jan Irvin mapped around this subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Separate that from the gullibility and the um, propensity towards self deception of, of the adherence, right? Those of us who sign up, like myself, like myself and Whitley Strieber, myself and Castaneda, myself and Crowley. Uh, actually, you know, my whole writing career refers to the various, not counting David Shana, because I've written about him a lot. But, uh, I mean, eventually I did get to a healthy relationship to, what were we going to call it, really? Uh, I, I guess we'll have to say knowledge, because I think that knowledge... It, this really is biblical that uh, knowledge itself is corrupt and therefore it's corrupting. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so, um, but we can't do without it. We can't live without it. Right? We yes. can't, we've got minds and we've got other bodily functions and all the rest. And together anyway, we're kind of condemned to use knowledge, but to, 
the the challenge is can we use noise and language this would refer to language too and the technology in a very obvious profane way can we use it without being used by it that seems to yes. be right what it comes down right. to yeah i think that that uh yeah knowledge is corrupt i mean i definitely do see the biblical idea there i definitely do see that uh that exegesis knowledge to me I don't know. I feel like that's a bit more complex because I see knowledge as well as being kind of an, an attribute of the divine, like in that broader tradition. So, but I definitely do see the, I, I do see the, the parallel or the, uh, uh, maybe in a, uh, a less, uh, controversial or, or more straightforward way. I definitely can see how the world is something that is generally viewed as being corrupt. Like the world is almost, uh, even more, uh, you know, uh, universally or, uh, 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 more, uh, unambiguously or unanimously than knowledge is something that's viewed as corrupt, but sure. we exist in the world. The only way beyond the world is, is through, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. if there is a way beyond it at all. Uh, and we don't so, know, yeah. we don't know how the world got the way it got. We kind of tend to assume, well, never, we now know the world's corrupt. It's indisputable and we yeah. can gather bodies of evidence such as, you know, my, my books as a body of evidence that the world is malevolent. Right. But, mm-hmm. but it, uh, I'm also. I've also been trying to get back to the origin, the original wound, and and uh, the only way I've been able to really is is by moving from the historical and the parapolitical into the mythological, into the religious, and into the metaphysical slash esoteric. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that brings up to me uh, a book that you referenced a lot in Sixteen Maps of Hell, which is the Brian Hayden book. Is that the Power of Ritual in Prehistory? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. That's a very fascinating uh, book uh, by. He's an archaeologist, right? In terms of his background. Yeah. But um, that that one sounds like it really blows open a whole new field of inquiry for that that question of the origins of kind of our society because like he goes back into tribal societies and really highlights the importance of secret societies and ritual and even the the origins of things like hero worship and like celebrity or like the adoration of individuals as divine right and how that's been like well i don't know if you would say it's been a constant throughout all of human history because we don't even know how long we've been around, but you could say that it's certainly been a constant for maybe the last 10 to 20,000 years, right? Yeah, good enough, right? I mean, that's my yeah, well, mean, if, if you could trace it know. that far back and spread it that cross, not even culturally, really, it was almost pre-culture in a way. But anyway, you could spread it that far in space and time, then... Um, then yeah, for me, it's 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 good enough to to say to deduce that it's always been with us this pathogen, the pathogen that has that makes society corrupt and corrupting to the point you know what it is today, and so then to me that does uh, it does seem as though that's consistent with the reading of the more esoteric and the the mythical texts. Obviously, the, the Genesis, the Garden of Eden, the corruption of knowledge, but and and how that happened because of the intervention of a malevolent entity who is very close to God, Lucifer, mm-hmm. and and that mm-hmm. the, the kind of deeper readings of Lucifer is is that Lucifer represented Nous, the principle of the divine intellect, which um, 
uh, is well it is a principle of existence it's even the first principle of god in in that mythos and it fell it got something went wrong so mm -hmm. so yeah something went wrong i mean maybe it was the, we're not at the end of it yet but something apparently went wrong with, yes. with the divine intellect itself with the function of noose of divine of cognition or whatever synonyms we might want to put on that uh yeah so, so, i mean it's interesting yeah. like you know yeah i think it's it, yeah there's something does something go wrong i mean in terms of like a monotheistic conception like it's hard to really uh concede that something would go wrong uh for god that yeah. immediately seeds into dualism unless uh, uh satan or shaitan in this formulation is an a attribute of god in some way which uh yeah that's kind of like a maybe a, a gnostic uh, idea of Satan as as the the noose uh, that you bring up, um, the but fallen, I mean, the know, fallen noose. right? Yes, but in any respect, you know, definitely uh, Satan uh, is you uh, close to God, as you said. Um, mm -hmm. But or you know, is this kind of like a uh, like a, a divine ruse or a false flag in a way? Where like, did this is this actually wrong? I mean, really, we uh, we can uh, we must assume that God had foreknowledge of this happening that you know would be the sort yeah. of what where the narrative would demand us to, well, that's to kind right. of go yeah. so how far how yeah. far back do we go because if we go that far back and we say well it's god we're talking about here and god is god so therefore all is good and right then then it doesn't address our present circumstances anymore yes. right so mm -hmm. i think no. we have to stop with something happened whether it's right or wrong and whether it's god's <laughs> plan or not that's way beyond our jurisdiction but there is a, a fall yeah. that got us into this situation i think it's also interesting because I, I i love it when we get like really far out into spiritual stuff and then i just shoehorn like marxism into it mm -hmm. uh basically <laughs> that I mean, I don't think I don't think Marx was necessarily like implying everything that we're talking about, but it is interesting how it kind of syncs up with his kind of vision of like the progress of history in a materialist yeah. sense, how there was primitive communism, which sounds a lot like what Hayden talks about in terms of there was a long prehistory of kind of egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies, and then something happened. And I think for Marx, what happens is the development of like class society, which I think Hayden describes as the creation of like agricultural surplus, which then allows the hoarding of quote unquote wealth for the first time. And then, you know, Marx talks about this as like just a kind of broad economic historical process. But I think there's like blank spots in there where you could plug in like the development of secret societies in the creation of class society to create these kind of hierarchies and start these, uh, I don't know, kind of mind games, if you will. Like the ultimate ont ontological op, basically, is that, you know, some people have a lot and a lot other people don't. And you should worship the people that do because they embody certain holy virtues, et cetera, et cetera. But I think like what Hayden gets into is like much like the secret societies that are around today, they are kind of defined by deception by basically like psyoping people, by withholding, by being incredibly secretive and, you know, restricting their rights to the public, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like in a, a lot of these currents are seem to be kind of stabbing at like a, a common idea that there was this, you know, whether it's like the Bible or it's like Marx's conception of history, uh, they, they do identify this moment where things changed and we ended up in this stratified 
kind of reality that seems to be mostly universal throughout like the period that we would call like civilized history across the world, right? Well, yeah. 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 Did we lose him? A connection issue, possibly. Putin got us. Yeah, he got us. The combination of mysticism and Marxism was yeah, too, was much. too much. Exactly. Shut it down. Like, Shut it down right now. It. This is yeah. too dangerous. Yeah, once you <laughs> mention Karl Marx, they're like, protect it. Um, Not in this context, you won't. Yeah. <laughs> she begins to steal a light. Confusion throws another mystery. It's out of focus with the eye. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
I did. Uh, I did feel like I was being censored, even though I don't usually go there because it's because oh, what's the point? But I did have that feeling because you guys just couldn't hear me. I was like, yeah. no, it just disappeared. I, I what think. Were you, that, what, what were you saying that was cut off? Because we didn't hear yeah. your last your last remark. I said. I said in response to what Dimitri said. I said, yeah, for me, it's it's definitely uh, not. The history of conspiracy that interests me, but the conspiracy of history. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, right. So what I was going to get to was is that uh, any any diagnoses that that don't pre- predate history, a prehistorical and prehistoric pre prehistorical, they're not going to come up with a solution such as Marxism, for example. I don't want to get pulled into mm. that because it could <laughs> get thorny, but. Uh, or Freudianism would be my version. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a Freudian, yeah. but I feel that I got a lot from Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can understand that people might feel they got a lot from Marx, but that Marxism is the solution. Uh, well, yeah. maybe we shouldn't linger well, on that too that long. All of well, I do think that you're right that like you know, uh, history historiography itself like is something that needs to be uh, examined. You know, like a like a true like a a uh, a historical framework that actually is dynamic and and uh, can withstand like uh, its application to like the diverse problems that like one encounters like just in the work of of history or of like politics or whatever like is going to have to have like a meta historical dimension or a self reflexive dimension that like implicates the concept of history or the the making and writing of history itself um, and I think that both Freud and Marx do have aspects of that but you know, they also are subject to like a, a meta historical or a reflexive kind of analysis. You know, I think part almost yeah. part of what mm-hmm. Dimitri was saying is that, you know, Marx, Mar- something that I brought up a million times, like one of my like uh, horses that I've like flailed into like dust is that, uh, you know, Marx positions himself outside of like the, the myths of the religious world. But I think that Marx actually is, you know, in the Hegelian tradition, he's like pretty christian knit you know i i was thinking of uh i listened to uh recently you know n- knowing that you were going to come on the show uh interview you did with uh, someone who we also went on with skeptico um and you guys got into a little uh debate you know around one of his uh uh, favorite bugbears of you know the history of christianity and uh oh, yeah. you were talking about how we you know uh you had said something uh i hope that i'm paraphrasing you accurately but you know about how you know we exist in many ways like within a christian culture like the influence of christianity and its topoi is so profound that it's very difficult to operate outside of of christianity to really ex- ex- extricate ourselves from it and presume that we aren't in some ways uh beholden to uh, the the frameworks of, of Christianity that we don't see the impression of Christianity in our culture uh, and I think that you know that's something that for instance Marx maybe failed to account for in his own work you know uh, he maybe positioned himself outside of it but reading it today we can see like the influence that these topoi had the influence yeah. of these what sort of uh, you know religious or magical perhaps you could say uh, ways of thinking uh, influence like some of his some of his thought. Although, yeah, I think there definitely is a lot to get from Marx, very much to get from him. 
And I, I like looking at it that way, even though I think a lot of self-described Marxists would uh, cringe at the idea that he would incorporate anything religious into his uh, right. rigorous analysis. It's purely and scientific, blah, blah, blah. another like category that needs to, I think, be kind of like, yeah. you know, like. History, but as yeah. we've also got over like his, uh, you know, his often his quote about, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses is often kind of misinterpreted. And I think that the people I think that's a dead end too. the kind of like, the hard capital M materialism of it's all just like, you know, economic forces and blah, blah, blah. I think there is, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. It's almost like self negating the idea that, you know, like flipping Hegel on its head and the idea that it's not ideas that move history. It's like material processes and stuff, but like also Marxism is like a set of ideas <laughs> that, yeah. that, that describe that. So you can't, you obviously can't completely discount the uh, importance of thought forms uh, in right. influencing our material reality. And I think that's like even more true today with things like the internet and the economy of attention and yes. all, all of that stuff. This, um, yeah. That goes back to the whole idea of like the line between like matter or the material or the immaterial or the material and the spiritual, which is like a very strange, like vulgar distinction that often that binary doesn't like always hold up you know and it often is like a, a red herring and i think a stumbling block for like a lot of people who are like i'm a materialist therefore like i must exclude like you know it just becomes a a, a borderline meaningless word that just kind of signifies whatever i the user of the term materialist holds to matter <laughs> like whatever i think matters like that's material and yeah. whatever i don't think matters like that's not materialistic but, anyway. but uh, right. yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I don't know how much you guys know about my trajectory in the, since 16 Maps of Hell, but Landmade Man was was an attempt for me to keep my focus on the exit, even if I wasn't quite out of hell, mm -hmm. at least just just uh, keep your eyes on the prize, you know, could just keep focusing on what I've been able to glimpse by mapping hell, which is what is not hell, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's outside the map of hell. Mm -hmm. That can't be mapped which is nature existence you know? mm -hmm. uh and in this case uh i mean i have this motto now observe the law of matter i changed it from obey the law of matter because the bay seemed a bit heavy and mm -hmm. who, who wants to hear that word and uh, after the aeons of uh the 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 boot on our neck kind of thing but anyway that observe also means obey in a softer way you observe it and you right. respond to what you observe right, right but essentially exactly. there's a form like of observe obedience traffic laws obey yeah. traffic yeah. laws basically yeah. and observe yeah, exactly. a holiday or something yeah it really is it really is euphemistic yeah in many yeah. contexts yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly oh well it's double meaning yeah. because it is an observation in a certain sense spiritual principle that i happen to agree with that coincides with good psychotherapy i think is is observation is all that we need to do right? anything that you add to the observation is going to square the uh, not square but um skewer the, ex the experiment interfere with it and so when it comes to recognizing and identifying the way that we've become embedded in a toxic malevolent system that's hard enough that's hard enough because i mean the, the, for me uh the the bottom line that I try to keep referring to is, is how can I apply this? How can I confirm it? We're talking about knowledge, sets of knowledge and theories and research and, and all the rest of it. There's so much out there that it can't be verified. And 
beyond that, it can't really be applied either. I mean, maybe those two things are related. So a lot. So in a way, my books have been about they've been um, like using a nail to drive out a nail. Like I've been writing about systems of knowledge that I've been trapped by in such a way as not as to create a new system of knowledge, but to to show the flaws in these systems of knowledge and to sort of poke enough holes that I can glimpse through them to what's actually happening, what's happening outside the, the internalized matrix of our minds and our false identities. Uh, and and follow that follow that feeling and that's um, uh, what I was going to say. Well, on the one hand, it's 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 very profane. It's it's the law of matter. It's just what's going on physically around us, you know, and, and engaging more and more in the the nature and the business of being alive, of being an organism in nature. That's that's really simple but very hard. Not, not many people want to do that life of the peasant but then on the other hand it's not all uh you know man does not live by bread alone um there's the life of the spirit and and that exploration can also be done internally and i'd say that's where the um, that's where the problem is like like the the trap that we're in is more of a spiritual one than a than a physical one we're not really trapped by nature like the gnostics would say i don't believe yeah uh we're we're trapped by society that's obvious but but why and how did society get created and what created it Mm -hmm. and and so the idea of the elite and you know this malevolent elite uh it it doesn't really answer it doesn't resolve itself or provide a resolution because it doesn't account for how there are two different kinds of human being and 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 one kind is good and the other is bad or, or you know whatever however it's going to be stripped down it's, it gets very very simple and it doesn't doesn't account for the, its own evidence so but the spiritual perspective does i mean religion yes. spirit uh, that they, they have entities they acknowledge entities yeah uh, I mean, so does the new age. So I'm not saying that that kind of knowledge can't be co-opted. All I'm saying is, is that uh, that is something that unlike, you know, faked moon landings and MK Ultra programs and all this stuff, which can be useful as coordinates on our, you know, our personal map, but eventually we can't ever really check it. Um, unlike those things, that entities just like the Laura Matter hammers and nails, there's something that we can check, we can refer to, because we, well, this is my, uh, the position I'm taking anyway, we we are uh, as controlled or maybe even a lot more controlled and interfered with by entities now than than ever before. Mm-hmm. So, so it's still going on is what I'm saying, you know, we, we can look at periods of history and we can say they're repeating and stuff, but it's, it's not... Um, it's not the same as what I'm saying, which is is that whatever was going on in the Garden of Eden that was represented mythologically, uh, as in the fall of the the noose of the intellect and the inversion of our nature in a way that our procreative energy, which is the most powerful thing about us, therefore the closest to God, uh, has become our lower nature, has become our damnation. Yeah. Mm. How did that happen? Well, it's it's happening. It's still happening. Yes. It has to keep recurring and repeating generationally and in the individual life 
for for the um, you know the original sin to keep replicating and to for the the powers of darkness to continue to hold sway. Hopefully, this is sufficient dra- dracularity. Yes, well, I <laughs> think for this podcast because I can definitely go to Transylvania. Yes, uh, oh for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, vampirism is like a very interesting theme in your work that like we we should talk about. But but relative to to what you've just said, I think that's yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true. I think that's part of. Uh, well, like regardless of the, the biblical narrative of like the uh, the religious narrative or the the apocalyptic kind of narrative uh, uh, across like different contexts, you know, I can think of uh, in the Islamic context. And I think in, in the Christian in one as well, you know, it is uh, part of that uh, kind of uh, post-lapsarian narrative or just simply part of that uh, teleology uh, in general that, uh, you know, this, uh, the influence of like, uh, what you call entities, uh, escalates like, uh, as we approach like kind of the closure of time in some way, uh, whether, whatever, however telescope that is, whether it's like, you know, very, Im- perceived to be very imminent or very distant in the future, it's kind of a, uh, consistent idea that as, uh, we approach the sort of closure of, uh, this temporal window, the influence of these forces will uh, will will uh, grow, will will escalate, and I think that you know what you uh, what you say is very true. That yet yeah, uh, materially speaking, there is no real ontological difference between like what you know what we might call like the uh, what you say the malevolent elites, you know, with uh, between the uh, you know uh, the uh, bourgeoisie or uh, you know the uh, like uh, the ca- the capitalists and and us you know so why is it that you know the uh, capitalists behave the way they do <laughs> you know like uh, and what prevents us from behaving that way like it's a uh, an aspect um, that is something that like human beings are one assumes like insofar as we are ontologically the same thing you know, that we're, uh, you know, up to a point, you know, we're, we're ontologically the same thing. We are to, to an extent also susceptible to. So yeah, like just a, a, a analysis is an account for that aspect. That's sort of, uh, the, uh, temptation that all human beings have to deal with the sort of, uh, the, the lower self, um, you know, uh, it's something that, that needs to be accounted for anyway. I, w- I would definitely, uh, agree with that at what aspect that I perceive at least and in, in what you're in what you're saying and I think it's necessary to to recognize that we're on a spectrum I think is necessary to um, understand well both ends of the spectrum I guess because yeah. and this is back to mapping hell if we want to access reaccess paradise uh, it does seem as though we have to navigate hell because we're in it right mm-hmm. um, and ditto with this, you know, if we want to recognize what is the nature of malevolence on this planet and what, what drives it and what causes it, then uh, that's going to, that, that is going to facilitate an orientation towards its opposite, towards, mm-hmm. towards wholeness and goodness. And, and, and we can all, just to whatever degree, we can observe that spectrum in ourselves mm-hmm. and in our lives. And I would say, to bring it back to the entities and what I see as the ground overarching conspiracy uh, on this planet, it relates to embodiment. And that, so if I was talking before about the dead corpses and the mm-hmm. Elohim, well, that's a new new interpretation for me. I just heard it last night, but I think mine is similar. The, the human body uh, is created uh, by, by a creator, I mean, consciously created as a, 
um, container or a host or a receiver transmitter for the soul mm -hmm. for some aspect that is if not eternal is certainly you know somewhere closer to the eternal and uh, if if the soul can't inhabit the body or to the degree that it can't then there are these pockets or vacuums in the body that just inevitably draw in entities whether they're dead thoughts or whoever the hell they are there's probably a large spectrum of entities too so i would say absolute malevolence which pertains to absolute power that corrupts absolutely in this satanic system that pertains to individ human individuals like as in bodies you know they're individually they're organ organisms that have hollowed out that have pushed out the soul completely and utterly through world ritualistic action mm -hmm. yeah. so their bodies become complete vacuums that are, can be totally possessed by powerful entities that thereby bestow power on on them. I mean, there isn't anything left of them, ironically and mm -hmm. tragically. But 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 there's still some kind of program, trauma generated program of an identity. So so they might they might experience some sort of continuity in some horrific way. But it's there's, there isn't really life in that organism yeah. i would say it's death mm -hmm. it's a death driven so who are yeah. back to vampires yes. uh, <laughs> i i really liked um how uh you tied together in like 16 maps of hell this idea of kind of like ritual um indoctrination uh and kind of tying that to the idea of like entity possession and mm -hmm. then also tying that to like social institutions that shape children whether it's like the Jesuits or whether it's old tribal secret societies or whether it's uh, fraternities or secret societies of the Freemasons or things like Skull and Bones or uh, what is it, Stagecoach Manor uh, where all the Disney kids went, you know, or <laughs> or for that matter, Interlochen where Jeffrey Epstein was a great benefactor. Mm -hmm. um, places like that where, or you have like the British school system where wasn't it... Um, Richard Dawkins, who said, like, yeah, I was buggered at boarding school, but it, it was it was character building, you know, right. and like just weird, weird kind of shit like that. Or Charles Manson going to Boys Town and how um, the shaping of people, I think we can understand. I mean, there's one level, I guess, of kind of the MK Ultra style uh, level of like maliciously or monarch programming, so-called, where the intentional infliction of trauma uh, becomes uh, is sort of applied systematically to shape the consciousness of somebody and maybe even I mean you could look at it on just a materialist scientific level of how the brain reacts to trauma and maybe that causes DID but then there's also like this kind of murkier spiritual dimension that you could it's kind of compatible with it you could lay on top of extreme trauma maybe becoming a sort of avenue for entity possession of some kind. Um, and then yes. people going out into the world and basically being some to some extent almost like possessed by these evil spirits and or, you know, making in some cases, I mean, there are cases throughout history of people making pacts with spirits this isn't all just i think we all know here this isn't just satanic panic nonsense mm -hmm. that the idea of people making uh pacts with malevolent entities is something that has recurred throughout human history right and yes. um even if it's happening in a more maybe more sub rosa kind of way it uh i don't know i i'm i find the concept resonant 
uh, somehow. Yes. I, yeah, I also thought this was a very, and I, I've wanted to bring this up since you first mentioned like the idea of going back to the, the original wound. Uh, but I think that the comments you've just made, you know, bring it to the fore, uh, even more, uh, sharply, uh, this, I sort of link between one of the phrases that, uh, you brought out actually from someone else's work from, uh, Kerpel, I forget his first name, uh, but he was a writer on Whitley Stryber. Kripal. Yeah. yeah uh, Jeffrey, Kripal. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Kripal. Yeah. You brought out the idea that, uh, physical and sexual trauma, uh, can, uh, crack open the cosmic egg, uh, in his words, which, uh, you definitely stuck oh out to me because I'm, you know, very, uh, interested in the the symbolism of of eggs uh, that we see coming up uh, again and again uh you know uh, in in this sort of uh domain but uh yeah this like uh, you know that through trauma we you know crack this egg to reveal like a a hidden reality you know that this uh, trauma is a secret to uh accessing these kind of uh higher realms and that really it provides a uh sort of uh imperative or provides kind of a uh rationale to this idea of like trauma-based mind control that comes up so often that uh you know uh, that isn't necessarily there like in in its absence you know it uh the the rat like why do these like depraved like insane things like you know uh it just seems like uh to almost be I mean, it is like ritualistically excessive in the way that you see people violating uh, taboos uh, or, you know, profaning the sacred in a in a manner that is performative, basically. You know, it just seems uh, to be performatively excessive. But that idea provides that rationale for why uh, these extreme acts of trauma are extreme, uh, you know, traumatic uh, activities and these sort of ritualized uh, traumatogenesis is uh, necessary in their minds. It's very richly explored, like I think, in both of, of these books that we've brought up, and uh, yeah, uh, in your general in your general work. Well, for the, the listeners who aren't that familiar with the material here with Whitley Strieber, <laughs> it is Strieber, by the way. Oh yeah, I think I've called him Strieber he, consistently. He, uh, yeah. I tried to tell yeah, Colin it multiple times. I know, I heard that yes. okay. It sounds um, so nice when you say it, Jason. And... It's uh, <laughs> it's not Jeffrey Creepel, as far as I know, but I think Creepel would fit better. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, Strieber, yeah. So he. Um, yeah, he was abducted. He was uh, inducted into a military program in San Antonio, uh, Randolph Air Base, Air Force Base, and um, there he was put in a Skinner box. And, got, and God only knows what was done to him about the age of eight or nine. Jesus. And one of the results of it was is that, uh, and there were a lot of other kids involved in that, um, that he. He believes anyway that uh, the cosmic egg was cracked. His his mirror of um, what does he call it? The mirror of uh, interpretation, I think he calls it, was was shattered, and he was able to see previously invisible realities, and that included these entities that he later called the visitors, and that they they intervened and abducted him. From he never actually claimed that they rescued him from that. On the contrary, he he, uh, he, he couldn't get out of it until his parents eventually took him out of it, but. Um, at some level anyway, he feels that they rescued him and they took him into these other realms and that, that was his first encounter with these entities. And Kripal's picked up on that and yeah, used hmm. it in his thesis about the traumatic secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I mean, I've been looking not at that material, but that sort of model in a different way recently in terms of 
uh, one of you was just talking about packs. I think it's Dimitri that packs are, you know, the, the, there's a tradition, there's a history of packs in occultism. One could even say that occultism really centers around making packs yeah. with entities. Uh, and um, the, we all make packs. Well, this is my theory anyway, currently, that we all make packs with entities when we're very young. And they're called imaginary friends. And even if we don't have imaginary friends, I didn't, as far as I know, mm. uh, I I made packs with entities. I, I'm pretty sure of it. And uh, and that has to do with a less extreme version of Whitley Strieber's case. He was actually taken out of his family and he was subjected to th this brutalization at the hands of the US government, the military, and, and entities rescued him. Now, you could take the psychoanalytical model and say it was dissociation and this, that, and the other, mm -hmm. or you can go to the metaphysical, or you can see that they're complementary, as mm -hmm. I quote Donald Cowshed, you know, his, his Jungian viewpoint is quite complementary with the metaphysical one. There's no reason to, to say it's reductionist. But in, but in any event, yeah, the idea that as infants or as young children, because we're in adverse circumstances, in our families, whether it's siblings or parents or caregivers or uncles, what have you, um, we're we're in under threat, or at the very best, we're not receiving the support that we need. And so, at some some way, instinctively, we respond to the the temptations, the the promises, like Jesus is in the desert of the entities that we you know they're they whispering in an area. We can turn a stone into bread. It can be lifted up by the angels or give you power, mm. whatever would be the appropriate promise to a young child, just that they'll take care of us. So I think, however, literally you want to interpret that, yeah, we, we do enter into packs with these entities due to trauma and, or at the very least, you know, um, you know mild, I would say it's, it's, you know, there's no such thing as mild trauma, but let's just say on the spectrum of trauma, um, and and uh, those entities, uh, there seems to be a correlation between entities that we make pact with and psychic powers or abilities mm -hmm. to see other realities and so on, yeah. known, known as cities in the East, um, but certainly the jinns in, uh, you know, in Islam, they, they tend to bestow, they grant wishes, you know, so and Castaneda. So there's definitely a correlation there between the trauma, the desperation and the dissociation that leads us to forge pacts with entities, the bestowing of powers of psychic powers and uh, creating a, a, a counterfeit kind of wholeness. You know, we're actually, we're actually split apart. We're divided. And yet we're, we're being propped up by these entities or the gaps in our psyche are being filled in by the entities. So we feel whole, but actually, mm we're being controlled. Yes, which you brought is, up uh, MK Ultra. Yes, you brought up in, in Prisoner of Infinity something that I think is uh quite true and, and quite astute, which is the kind of different perception around uh cities, which is yeah, one term for kind of these uh bequests. I guess in Islam you call them like karamat or, or sort of miracles or, or uh, displays of sort of this, this numinous power. But there's a a different uh kind of you, I think your your words are uh, that in the West, we confuse psychism with spiritual attainment, right? Whereas, uh, and you say, yeah, from an Eastern point of view, they're seeing it as at odds with one another. And I think that, you know, even in the history of, of the West, even in the history of Latin Christianity, probably like the idea of these sort of miraculous powers as being a veil between like true spiritual progress uh, or, or a veil before 
true spiritual progress probably is an idea, I would imagine. Uh, but yeah, like in the contemporary sort of West in the new age, you know, there is a conflation that like the, that's the, that's the end goal. That's the be all end all is being able to wield these psychics, you know, super abilities, spiritual Uh, superpowers. Yeah. Literally. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at everything Esalen Institute was kind of obsessed with and the human potential movement. Human potential movement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The utilitarian aspect of like, how can we use these like for worldly power? And now now you see it with like the psychedelic culture in California has morphed to such an extent that where it started out as kind of this hippy dippy uh, tool of enlightenment nowadays. Like I, I heard recently, this kind of surprised me that microdosing has become i knew that it had become popular with silicon valley like tech people you know because of course steve jobs took acid and that's why he was so have so creative but now i've heard that like just professional people like lawyers lawyers are microdosing in the san francisco bay area sometimes five <laughs> days a week and i just thought that is such a perfect encapsulation of the trajectory of this kind of entheogenic psychedelic culture because they're they're not even ostensibly taking it for spiritual enlightenment purposes anymore. They're doing it to be more efficient at their jobs. Yeah. And I just thought, God, like what a str- and then on top of that you're opening yourself up to God knows what if you're on a low level dose of psilocybin or lsd five days a week i mean yeah even, I think it really like, slips the- into microdosing is an amazing coinage too because like yeah, like maybe the individual doses are micro, but it could like, you know, micro adds up to become macro. Like, you know, oh, you yeah. if you just get it off like, by a little bit, you yeah. accidentally macro dose and then you're <laughs> yeah, ripping like, like in the um, courtroom, like trying to talk to a jury. It just seems so bizarre and not even not even productive towards whatever kind of work thing they're going towards, which almost makes me feel like I'm even more sussed out by it because are people just getting so spiritually burnt out by these types of jobs that they're convincing themselves that this is something maybe that will either make it easier it'll it'll emotionally it'll allow them to be more kind of emotionally present but then you always do have to ask yourself you know what happens when like the machine elves and the claxton men maybe start (laughs) showing up as they often do on psychedelics and like how are they going to handle that as you know like professional cognitive labor it's just it seems like it's going in a very strange direction where people are going to end up opening themselves up to all kinds of kind of sketchy influences um yeah i definitely yeah yeah, i I definitely uh find the idea that we all make packs with entities uh appealing and i mean you know to to quote uh to quote bob dylan uh, who dimitri mentioned earlier you know like uh (laughs) Of course, this isn't like an idea that originates with him, but like, you know, you got to serve somebody. And I think that's true. You know, people who imagine themselves to not, you know, that we are like in an environment of being like besieged by all these different influences that are often operating uh, under the radar or in a hidden way where we don't necessarily maybe even notice uh, their influence uh, that makes it, you know, all the more necessary to actually you know, uh, cultivate an awareness. That's like, uh, I mean, that's that's my mentality on it uh, anyway, that like, you know, you need to like cling to the lifeboats because like we're in a sea of uh, these influences that are going to, you know, I think, as you said, even about, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood or uh, the way that these people become agents or assets of uh, these narratives or agendas, you know, they don't even know, you know, that like that what they're necessarily doing, that they've been like recruited, you know, it's a 
lifelong almost uh, process of, of, of cultivation uh, and indoctrination where, you know, they uh, become agents of this system uh, and they don't want to question, you know, like the, the reasons for their success uh, being yeah. part of, uh, you know, their usefulness to uh, the, these agendas. Yet I think, you know, obviously the, the hiddenness is uh, a major asset of what I would view to be like a kind of a negative uh, agencies or negative uh, uh, powers and, and, and uh, potentates uh, in this world. But I think, yeah, it's something that one needs to be aware of and like try to find and cling to like the the lifeboats that, that are out there, because like if you don't, there's no like there's no there's no being neutral on a, on a moving train of, of entities, uh, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Um, All right. Just, uh, another Whitley uh, Striver uh, sort of uh, uh, resonance Strieber. there with the train. Uh, yeah, Striver, <laughs> excuse me, Striver, yeah. I, I mean, I've used this analogy, the good cop, bad cop in the past in terms of the conspiracy and how it's a sort of pendulum effect. And so you have, but anyway, I, mean, I won't go into why I use it for conspiracy because I wanted just to say that it, it also applies, it occurs to me maybe even better when it comes to entities in that, uh, well, that situation with the good cop, bad cop, you've got the bad cop who's scaring the witness or the suspect into all the terrible things that are going to happen to him. And then you, the good cop comes and takes over and says, but, you know, I can help you. Mm -hmm. So the very conditions that we get uh, traumatized by are created directly or indirectly by, by malevolent entities. And uh, the malevolent entities certainly know how to appear benevolent, yes. to appear like saviors. And so just like the state, you know, with its deadly vaccine now, they can they can step in apparently offering the solution to us and we won't suspect that we've been set up. So it's it's mm -hmm. the problem, reaction, solution. Yes. Uh, it's one, one set, yeah, one yeah. size fits all. Um, modus operandi. Uh, of control uh, and you know at base of it because i do try and strip things down to unified theories if i can and then you can kind of put it to bed in a certain sense uh and the thing about unified theory is you can test it on yourself because if it's truly unified you'd be part of it and it's the bid for power mm -hmm. i mean i don't need to say that will to power but i don't know if you talked about childhood trauma because you need that in there like why are we driven to, to varying degrees to seek power, including uh, what somebody was just talking about with the uh, LSD or the spiritual quest, whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's the will to power light. Like even if, if you think you're seeking enlightenment, why are you seeking enlightenment? Mm -hmm. Well, because you're unhappy. Why are you unhappy? Because you feel you can't function right in your life, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're looking for power one way or another. Uh, and and that's that lays you open to temptation. I mean, that was what made uh, Jesus. Uh, that was how he passed the test. Right? Mm -hmm. He was in a position of powerlessness voluntarily, admittedly, but but and he said no to the temptation of power. And even the crucifixion itself, he said yes to the crucifixion, which is an experience of complete powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the necessary surrender to the will of of existence, you know, of everything. That's the only thing that can really counter the entities. Is you just say no. I don't. It doesn't matter how powerless and how terrified and how um, oppressed I feel. Uh, I'm not going to reach out for solutions that are being provided by the same forces that created yes. the situation that Absolutely. I'm in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that. Yeah, by and large, like that is the 
way that these things work. I think that even in the uh, Strieber uh, situation, you know, where uh, I think you even talk about this in, in Prisoner of Infinity, the, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of setup of, you know, I'm being uh, traumatized and horribly abused and now I'm, I'm going to be rescued by these entities. You know, you talk about how that's actually part of kind of like a, a Stockholm syndrome or a, uh, you know, that that's part of this entire uh, system of indoctrination is that they, well, yeah. yeah, they appear mm-hmm. as, as saviors. And in fact, even in his own narratives of events, there's slippage between these entities as tormentors and saviors, you know? Yeah. yeah. I was going to yeah. say, that's right. They save him, but only to tra- traumatize him some more. Yeah. So then it's inevitable if you take Strieber's opus at face, uh, uh, you know, on trust or at face value, and you take it as a whole piece, as I did with Prisoner Infinity, or try to, then if he can rationalize the traumatic abuse of um, the visitors because they're non-human or whatever he's going to call them, you know, uh, interdimensional or wise or anyway, he does. He justifies their traumatic treatment of him because he says it helped him to evolve. Then why not apply that to the Randolph Air Base torture chamber you know of mk ultra right yeah Yeah. why not right there are just some truly crazy things like in that like the the episode around uh his consumption of sweets where he's eating like chocolate or candy and so the uh entities decide to i guess either appear to be or actually like torture his son uh and say like you know this is what you get for eating candy (laughs) like and then he's like well actually like i i'm so grateful to them for doing that like it's yeah. truly like a, a deranged mentality, but yeah, then I mean, there really becomes like a sort of identification almost where he, I mean, he's fully initiated in a way where he kind of identifies himself with this this master of the key being who is saying all these uh, b- bizarre things about how like I was just saying to Dimitri before I think before you even uh, joined our our call uh, about the the idea like uh, the only way to save yourselves is to build a computer that's more intelligent than you are like that's you have to do it and like you're not doing it fast (laughs) enough like quickly build this like hyper intelligent ai which is just yeah it just sends off every alarm bell in uh you know uh yeah yeah, build your sus ai god yeah like you must build an ai god that's more intelligent than you like yeah the idea that anybody could like trust that notion is you yeah i mean you really need to be very very systematically i think indoctrinated and i mean it is happening on a social scale where you can get to the point of through like these different uh, approaches that we've mentioned you know through like film and and through larger kind of cultural indoctrination you actually can like broadly get people to the same point where it somehow seems reasonable to trust like this being saying like oh you just need to build this uh this ai god um and like the reason why the aliens can't come to save you from yourselves is because like you don't believe in them enough and you haven't built the AI God. Like if you do that, like, you know, you need to to pay us up front or whatever, and then we'll give you everything you ever wanted. Like the fact that, you know, anyone can be brought to the point where that seems reasonable, you know, uh, it's. Yeah. yeah and that ties like, into what's going on around everywhere today in terms of, uh, I think you're probably familiar, Jason, with Steve, Dr. Stephen Greer, 
the mm-hmm. UFO channeler who's now very tight with Demi Lovato, who has her own <laughs> UFO right. reality show where she yeah. goes around trying to contact entities, uh, both ghosts and UFOs. Yeah, the mainstreaming and, of what you've talked about, like, you know, with in the sort of new way, like, I think in the just in the past couple of years has been a tremendous move. I think that, like, validates a lot of what you said, really. Uh, definitely. It, yeah, definitely. like the movement of this into the mainstream. Yeah. yeah, those reality TV shows as ghost hunters and whatnot. Right. Yeah, so it's well, become, they have ghost yeah, hunters, but now Demi hunters. Lovato is kind of combining that with a kind of UFO hunting thing. But it's but even though she doesn't really acknowledge it in the reality show, it's heavily influenced by Stephen Greer's entire kind of approach to the whole thing, which really revolves around basically doing going out in the desert and doing TM to invite the entities to appear which he very, you know, staunchly insists, like, works. So, yeah, I mean, he even, even has an app now. Like, her fans over the internet to do it. I mean, Ghost Hunters, yeah, yeah definitely you can see how Ghost Hunters lays the groundwork for that, but Ghost Hunters is really, like, you know, just kind of this thing of, like, we're going to go into a house with our EMP detectors, and, like, the sort of uh, right, mysticism I've seen, isn't... I mean, there was, yeah, the mysticism there was a recent <laughs> show on Netflix, I couldn't watch it, but where they get into Crowley magic and uh, they yeah. talk to that guy, Aaron Greenblatt and whatnot. So it seems as though... The mysticism that, uh, has come uh, much yeah. more to the fore, I think, yeah. recently. Well, now there's... Yeah, more. there's also magic. I mean, on platforms like TikTok, like the popularity of kind of casual magic and things yeah. like that are, mm-hmm. uh, or casual Manifesting, scripting things, yeah. Uh, yeah, manifest. Yeah reality shifting all these things and i think it really reflects uh, and i think uh, you definitely talked about this for jason like the uh the entity uh, aspect of the internet and how the internet in a way is like a new almost like spirit it's like a synthetic spirit world that has been overlaid on our reality that it's, almost yeah, behaves it's in a the vessel. way it's a conduit you know it's like the way that you would build an idol for a god to like a light upon that's what it is you know like the entity or entities you know maybe think i i would think of it in terms of like you know uh satan you know <laughs> pre-exists mm-hmm. the vessel but like the vessel allows it to interact with us uh more fluidly mm-hmm. and it wants to cultivate that vessel even more yeah well, that, I mean, so when you were talking earlier about the the kind of delusion it would take to believe that we need to build a, an AI, et cetera, et cetera, um, I had two thoughts around that. One was in for a penny and for a pound. I mean, when people, <laughs> when they've invested in certain beliefs and certain behaviors and procedures and whatnot long enough, they it's hard to disinvest. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one which I could talk more about. But the other is... Uh, it may actually be necessary. It may actually be a ruse of, of God is mm-hmm. to isolate Satan so that he can be identified. I, it may be necessary that human beings are being used as puppets of our man or Satan to create a body for him. And that's the, that's the devil's plan to try and possess the, the human host that was meant for God. But it's also God's plan because when, insofar as the devil, devil is able to do that, it isolates not just the devil from creation because he gets incarnated, but also all the human beings that have aligned with the devil are also crustaceans or warts on his hoary techno body and then the whole boat gets thrown in the pit of fire yes that's a yeah that's a bit of a comforting thought but yeah like uh, oh i mean we know that uh satan can't win in the end you know and that like however much like he might plot or you know uh 
insofar as Satan uh, acts against God or like that uh, Satan resists God or Satan wants to or Satan's uh, goal is to uh, damn human souls insofar as that is against uh, God's agenda. Uh, it can't really succeed in, in a way that God wouldn't want it to. You know, God, as you know, at any time could like obliterate Satan if he if he desired. But yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think that the, the the thing is that one would hope to avoid like, uh, you know, as many people as possible uh, being sucked into this, uh, you know, whether this uh, ruse is part of uh, God's yeah. plan, you know, to sort of weed out uh, sure. those people, you know. Yeah, sure. you one, know. And one doesn't want to imitate that yeah. thought, because one, one, one doesn't want to aspire to thinking the way God thinks. Um, and because yes. it, it comes up with some very pathological rationalizations, as we know, you know, for purging him, you know, uh, purging yes. uh, wastes and all this kind of thing, right? But I would say that it's not really comforting as a thought, precisely because of what you just said, but it is sobering. Mm -hmm. And it does, I would say it puts the focus where it needs to be, which isn't, oh my God, what if, uh, what's going to happen to the whole species and you know, how bad can it get? But where am I situated in this? Mm -hmm. Like if this is what's happening and okay, maybe there's a good outcome in the end, I, I'd rather not be cast into the lake of fire. Yeah, <laughs> right? I think that's I a have, good point. I, have, yeah, I definitely have point. some incentive to really uncouple myself from my own psychology of previous investment, which is what I was going to say about that is we are all susceptible to deception currently, particularly around some miraculous solution because mm -hmm. things look so bad. And the kind of self-sacrifice that seems to be required is, is Christian. Actually, mm -hmm. it is practically equivalent to getting up on the cross and being nailed you know, to avoid the, the terrible situation we're in. And so the tendency to grasp out for some pseudo solution where we don't have to do anything, right? It just, yeah. there it is. It's the solution is going to get greater and greater correspondingly. Um, and, and that, so that's, that's back to the good cop, bad cop, really, because we've got the bad cop that created the situation we're in all the way back in the garden of Eden. Yeah. And now we're going to have the good cops going to show it'll be the, the Antichrist. The Antichrist, the exactly. Who's going yeah. to say, here's, here's your way out. But it's the same guy at the end <laughs> as it was at the yeah. beginning.
can we how can i really own up to my own investment in that bad basically if we took a wrong turn hundreds of thousands of years ago generations back and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse then everything in my identity that was culturally created it's like being a heroin addict has been uh has been um created with a with innate dependency on the thing that created it that's why we know it's an evil creator or a demiurge it's made us dependent mm. it doesn't want us to grow up no it definitely especially if we're talking about the demiurge of hollywood it does not want us to grow up um right. ever mm. and i think that is by design you know perpetual infantilization maybe it's either easier to i don't know shape trauma shape a population that still identifies with the things they identified with when they were eight years old yeah definitely <laughs> me i mean the infant- like climate. the the aspect of like childhood or the infantilization yes it's uh that's 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 very interesting i think for sure like uh and we definitely see yeah the you know people just being like reshuffled the same slop like to keep people as uh you know as much like in a child mentality as possible um I mean, it is interesting, like, uh, it's a very, like, big can of worms, like, talk about, like, where does childhood end, where does childhood begin, like, what is the idea of, like, an adult, what does it really mean, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, definitely it's something that we can see right. culturally. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, so, uh, well, the Arthur C. Clarke novel popped into my head, they would tell them, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is childhood? Child I'm sure ends? it's relevant, yeah. it is relevant, but uh, I would say that childhood ends when we when the soul lands when we fully inhabit the body and we're fully here then, mm-hmm. then we're grown up 
but uh, yeah, if that doesn't happen, then we never grow up. We, I think that's we, also we controlled by entities that that keep us in that childhood state of dependency because because we're dependent on them. Right? Yeah, it does make me wonder because I guess it can cut both ways. Whereas like these socialization kind of schemas uh, that might traumatize adolescents uh, as it kind of shapes them into adults, that you know, there's also all these. There are these these rites of passage, uh, you know, transculturally throughout history that are very consciously designed to like prepare adolescents to enter their adult role, and oftentimes this is they have to overcome certain challenges or learn certain you know uh, spiritual principles or things like that, and then they are considered, or even if you think of like bar mitzvahs and like things like that, like you know, there's there's a moment in which you are kind of like. Uh, kind of publicly uh, almost, you know, christened or a- acknowledged to be an adult. And nowadays I, I kind of feel like and definitely in like Western culture, um, I don't know, besides like maybe graduating high school or graduating <laughs> college or something like that, what uh, I think a lot of those like rites of passage have kind of fallen off and they've just been replaced by, I think it's maybe something that's opened the door for a, uh, you know, the, the rising popularity of just like people staying in a kind of suspended adolescent mindset, like well into their twenties, thirties, forties, even, you know, and, uh, like they're, they're, they don't seem as interested in going through any kind of like ontological shift into becoming a quote unquote adult. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's complex. I wouldn't we definitely say that. see like the the sort of system of like a an extended adolescence. Like ha- you know, we see like the sort of uh, like the structural uh, factors that lead to like after college, for instance. You know, like you moving back in with your parents, or like you know, you're kind of adrift. Like there's the the adolescence like phase, which didn't really even exist for like most of history as a concept. The idea of like this sort of a liminal period between mm-hmm. like childhood and adulthood. Um, you know, that's just grown and grown and grown, uh, over time. But, you know, and I mean, I think like in terms of like the, the theme of dependency, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think the dependency itself is, uh, you know, fundamentally bad or a sign of like a demiurgic like impulse. I mean, we depend on one another, we depend on, on the world, you know, what is problem is, I think there's two problems that maybe feed into each other. One is dependency on like an, an abusive power, dependency on something that uh, doesn't, you know, uh, that you sh- one shouldn't depend on and that one actually can't depend on. And the other one is like maybe yeah. the illusion of, of sovereignty, the illusion of, of being in, truly independent like, and, and not recognizing the dependencies that exist, whether, you know, uh, they're like a debt to things that one yeah. can and should depend on or a dependency upon things that one really shouldn't be depending on at all. Um, yeah. yeah, just an atomized individual. Take, yeah, yeah, and so the the rite of passage or the pseudo rite of passage that most Western kids go through now is, um, I think it speaks to that because it's kind of a willed show of independence that uh, is fa- it's false independence. So, for example, and it's kind of childish, really, because it's to do with gratifying the urges, essentially. Yeah. Which uh, I mean, there is there is some tradition in that with like the liminal rite of passage, 
was to do with with adolescents having a period in which they could be wild and mm-hmm. crazy and 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 know that they wouldn't get ostracized yeah. from the society. Although generally, so like out. in that sort of tribal Victor Turner type liminal right of rights to passage or the uh, you know Van Gennep, that's like you know one night or so, you know, or like a weekend. It's yeah, exactly. Rather than, exactly. Yeah. Whereas. Whereas, I mean, for me, it was this way, but I mean, I was a bit unusual in some ways because I was inheriting money, but I think it is for many. I mean, kids go to college and they have four years of drinking, right? Absolutely. And then when they get out, they don't necessarily stop drinking. So, and the sex as well, sort of casual sex, mm. just this, this kind of pursuit of gratification somehow has got... Uh, superimposed or interjected into supposedly growing up as if growing up was about gratifying the urges mm-hmm. which is what being a child is about right? yeah yeah it's, it's the op- in a certain sense growing up is the opposite or at least fi- um referring to something other than one's own uh you know id-like desires and own, one's own hedonistic urges but i'm just stumbling at it because there's an unfinished point in this oh yeah the back to observe the law of matter that um, that's a false kind of that's an illusion of independence the fact the idea that you can just go out and be wild and pursue your own interests have sex as much as you want and and etc and now with the antigens and whatever it is this supposed pursuit of sovereignty mm-hmm. through the assertion of independence that is it I would say underneath it is the illusion that we can be independent of our body. Because if you do things mm-hmm. to your body that are to gratify your mind, um, then uh, you're going to suffer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, the the, and, you know, the yeah. sex thing, I think that's like a, it's a very third rail issue, but I think that, you know, uh, someone who comes to mind, uh, Andrew Dworkin, you know, in her, in her book, Intercourse, I think like a oh, lot yeah. of the things that she said were actually like on the money in terms of like the, and I think we've seen this, like, in the years uh, since, uh, you know, uh, she, she left the scene, the, like, the depoliticization of sex, you know, the depoliticization of this idea of intimacy or sort of the idea that, like, you know, this isn't a remotely political matter and, like, it's all up to, like, the, you know, the idea that this exists in this kind of vacuum of, like, true sovereignty Just and doesn't choice. have any, yeah, it doesn't have any kind of, like, cultural ramifications the I, I mean like obviously this I mean we're talking about like uh when you say like mild trauma in terms of like you know mild tra- trauma in the traditional sense of like a wound you know it's uh it, like penetration or like the sort of or even the emotional intimacy like uh, that comes with a relationship and with sex is like very like you know it leaves an emotional mark there's no way to get away from it um, and I think, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've brought this up before, but I feel like there's definitely, uh, consequences to the sort of, uh, system that we see in the United States now, I think a lot where you have like a million girlfriends or a million boyfriends, like, you know, on your way towards finding, you know, or maybe not even on your way to anything, maybe just like a perpetual cycle of like these, you know, that I feel like that kind of like, you know, I, I think that can be very harrowing emotionally to have like these sort of oh, ephemeral, yeah. Uh, extremely intimate relationships. Uh, and now and Silicon again. Valley is like fully yeah. in on it with like the, the structure of the dating apps themselves, yeah. which basically the like gamification. encourage, yeah, as we saw with the uh, the already thankfully done uh, West Elm Caleb meme of like a month ago where it kind of highlighted how everybody is looking at it in this weird gamified way of just using each other. And yeah, it, it really shows like how the how it can kind of drive people a little insane or drive people towards acting a 
little bit, you know, uh, may, maybe sociopathically is too strong of a term, but definitely a little bit. And it's like there's definitely downsides to this. this isn't just like a free libertine paradise where you have independent actors yeah. kind of running around. Like it's just. Uh, and there's definitely yeah. potential for like, you know, uh, trauma or like various negative uh, consequences like in the uh, in other models, for instance, like, you know, an extreme uh, more uh, sort of traditional patriarchal model of like get married like shortly after puberty uh and then like you stay married like uh unless extraordinary circumstances occur like obviously bad things can happen there but i don't know like yeah there's definitely unique uh negative aspects of the way things are uh structured now where you know this sort of uh endless carousel of like these intimate relationships that then and i don't think yeah it doesn't seem good i I mean i think if we want to get based on my own experience i would say like you know i live with the ghosts of like you know all those things that like happened you know it worked out like fine you know like i'm happy now but like you know i i feel like there's yeah it's a a little bit of a fucked up way to structure things well i i think just to slide it there to get really third rail like if you look at the dichotomy now like in the united states for example in the big cities and the coastal areas you're seeing this dichotomy of like the millennial generation now where they are not starting families at anywhere near the rate of like their baby boomer parents. Now there still are millennials who are doing that, but they're out in the more rural areas, usually uh, have lower income, lower, higher education. But the people that really bought into like the dream of the big city atomized individual life are, you know, I mean, it's, it gets to a certain point where the end result, the, the net end result is that less people are like, uh, finding like you know long-term partners or being in long-term relationships less people are having children and you know there's even a huge push now to be like you know like the the, the child-free subreddit or something like that you know where uh, this is kind of like almost celebrated as like a value um, and they they rag on people like like child havers um, are kind of like yeah, ragged the on breeders. On there's there. some like cringe stuff on that subreddit. I mean, like, yeah. you know, I don't think it's like uh, I mean, my point isn't necessarily about like not having children, although I don't think that like, you know, uh, having children is bad or whatever. You know, I think it's uh, you're pretty. Uh, it's, I mean, it's no, a great thing no to Sophie do, honestly, takes to have kids. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's uh, like the. I don't, the uh, the aspect, I guess, maybe of of sex itself. You know, the 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 way that sex yeah, is exactly. conceived. The sort of well, even, there's it, even well, less you know. sex happening among the zoomers. Well, what, what, right? if it, what if it was understood? I mean, like, because we could talk about abortion. You know, we wanted to get controversial, but <laughs> so starting with that, what if it was understood that abortion that that a soul in, begins to inhabit the fetus at conception, right? So abortion is always murder. If that was energetically understood, if it's true, I'm not saying it is, I happen to think it is, but I don't know. But that that isn't necessarily a moral question, or it becomes a moral question in terms of is it moral to murder an infant or not? Mm-hmm. But the question of whether that infant is sentient or not uh, is... is um, is not a moral one, right? It's just it's either either it is or it isn't, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the thing with uh, sex being an act of conception, what if it's also a, an energetic fact that whether or not we impregnate a woman when a man ejaculates uh, or a woman orgasms, does a conception happens? And that, uh, let's say, tulpas that can become egregores mm-hmm. are created or entities, mm-hmm. right? Something is happening there that we have a responsibility for. 
And uh, if we were to see the truth of that, like I say, observe the law of matter can extend into the spiritual as well, observe the law of spirit or of metaphysical, then um, we would, we would, we would, we might realize that one should never have sex unless it's to have a child. There's, there's no moral injunction there. That's just good, practical, energetic responsibility. Just say. I mean, mm-hmm. it could be that extreme. If we were to become energetically uh, conscious and responsible, the way that we live our lives. Uh, might be unrecognizable and and certainly it would be utterly abhorrent to <laughs> most of the the people and the cultures and the subcultures that we're talking about right? who have been they've been um indoctrinated into a way of living that i say is as i said earlier is is a false independence that is a slavish dependency on something that is sucking the life out of them and making them addicted to or feel dependent to things that aren't even healthy, never mind necessary. And by the same token, they are, we are to whatever degree, um, yeah, enforcing, not enforcing, but kind of imposing or being seduced by this false idea that we can be independent from the body and that what we do with our body we're not doing to our body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I and, and all of that yeah. is going to all yeah. of that is going to determine the extent to which our life force can inhabit our body. Because if we put shit in our body or we use our bodies irresponsibly, then we're going to make that body not feel. Um, it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to have toxins in it. It's going to have distortions and all the rest of it. And that's going to make it more difficult for our life force and our awareness to be in it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thin end of the wedge I talked about earlier, which is the, the satanic uh, drive towards a false indiv- individuation, which attempts to atomize the individual, completely cut it off from all human connections and even dependence on nature, really, because they become techno-narcissistic dependents and, and thereby become her, that, you know, the only end result of that is a body that can't host a life force at all and, and becomes an instrument of, of satanic entity slash technology. Yeah, and yes. what's a more fitting end to that than these like transhumanist Silicon Valley people wanting to upload their consciousness onto a computer when yeah. they die? You know, a <laughs> like, deranged goal. Presumably, yeah. they want to. Presumably, they would want to build robots that could house the computer. I mean, yes. presumably that's going to be the next step because they still want to walk around and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. yeah, it's it's absolutely it's writ large now on the. Mm-hmm. You know, in, yeah, and it's it's amazing how this is like you know uh, through like the sort of uh, sci-fi fantasy like uh, you know cultural complex like this is like a very mainstreamed and like ubiquitous sort of almost. Uh, reflexive, like uh, taken for granted uh, imagination of what humanity's destiny is. You know, I mean, I think you you had a great passage in Prisoner of Infinity where you're like, I don't get the like fascination with going to space. Like, why does everyone want to go to space so badly? You know, like uh, it's a very hostile environment. Like most of these like planets that you could live on, like aren't very welcoming to human life. You know, there's something behind this that's not just like, you know, it's not like seeing, uh, you know, if you uh, like are settled in Plymouth or something and then you see Boston, you're like, damn, we should have settled here. You know, it's, uh, you know, not an inviting place. There's something else uh, psychologically, spiritually motivating this need to go into space that, yeah, I think, you know, you you suggest and I think it is true. It's very connected with this whole idea of, of the transcendence of the body and also like wanting to 
uh, you know, the uh, this sort of a, a intelligent AI push that this is the ultimate environment for this to happen in, you know, uh, yeah, like uh, and also like symbolically, you know, not just practically, but like what space kind of represents this sort of higher realm uh, and or maybe in mm-hmm. fact is, you know, even though it's yeah. absolutely hostile to the body. Literally. Yeah, it's yeah, and the best case scenario, probably. I mean, you're sitting in a tin can, you're on a floating shopping mall, mm-hmm. which, or living in a yeah. bubble on Mars, like under a radiation shield or yeah. something. Yeah, it's a really, really deeply unappealing. So it seems the only thing that's unappealing about it is that the um, we associate it with movie narratives and sci-fi novels. So like the propaganda medium is the masses, the propaganda for space travel. Uh, all the sci-fi material, uh, Star Trek being the obvious, you know, culprit, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, 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 a, it first of all, it presents an idea that space is somehow inviting. That there are planets with fruit and sexy babes on and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly, it's it's a novel anyway. So when we're reading a novel or watching a TV show or a movie, we feel. Uh, empowered, we feel comfortable, we feel safe, we feel, yeah, we're being stimulated like an infant in the womb, a baby in the womb, kind of, mm-hmm. to that point, immersed in a false reality. So that itself has an appeal. So then, so then we're, yeah, we're lured in, I think it's a good micro example of how we're lured into something that's anti-life, hostile to our own interests, but by, by the, um, you know, being weaned on these narratives and by the associations that they have for us in, into wanting something that is inherently unappealing, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, and I think it does it does seem to center around technology. Like technology seems to be the the main uh, antagonist in these narratives, and the false savior always seems to be somehow uh, dependent on technology or technology itself. And so I'm, you know, I'm just trying to apply this to our current situation now, uh, which is that there is an unknown uh, substance that's being injected into billions of people, may or may not have nanotechnology in it, but it definitely has RNA, you know, genetic hacking technology into it. Yeah. Billions yeah. of people are inviting that into their bodies uh, it, because they're afraid, apparently, because they're afraid of something that is pretty harmless in my experience I, after two years a lot of on the ground experience I haven't seen that the COVID is any kind of threat and even to, insofar as it is it created in a laboratory kind of threat so again problem reaction solution but that people are first of all they were they were lured into the LARPing of being in a, in a pandemic scenario which is like a Hollywood movie and then secondly they were lured into the super vaccine solution which I think um it's this psychology of prior investment again that people the are so dependent. yeah they're so dependent on the medical system at all for all these frightening problems that um yeah when 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 it comes to the crunch, you know, when the shit apparently hits the fan, even if it's just fake shit, um, then people are just ready for it. You just give me, give me the mark of the beast because they've been so primed and prepped for this and so dis- uncoupled from their bodies. Yeah. That, 
right? They're more afraid of an, the idea of death, this is, this is a mental thing anyway, than they are with the actual reality of something being put in their body, which is harmful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think, think yeah, you know, grooming would be a good word for it for you know several years of getting people prepped with these Hollywood blockbusters and I think the psychological process of being locked down in this pandemic mm. thing for like over a year, I think definitely groomed people in a state of fear and exception to. Uh, yeah. Two things that there. I've definitely noticed. Well, uh, you know, I'm not like a, uh, as I've said, I've gotten trouble on the podcast for saying in the past, like I'm not like a big like nanotechnology, like in the, in the vaccine guy. But what I do think and what I've noticed, like, you know, among people, uh, you know, for one, I've definitely noticed like the social impact of like the sort of, uh, evacuation of like public spaces and like the way that our society has shifted to like a mediated form where like actual like a person, the person embodiment like has fundamentally transformed and people have been like acclimatized to it and become used to it. And another thing that I think that people don't appreciate, which I think that people who are like uh, skeptical of some of the you know, uh, narratives about like the, you know, uh, or, or question the, the, va- I mean, we don't really know like, what the consequence of the vaccine will be. We might see an Alex Jones situation where people who have taken the vaccine, you know, dropped at five years, like maybe, you know, uh, we've recently seen like these vaccine companies like dropping like their stock and, you know, big pharma companies, you know, uh, yeah, acting pretty that. shady. So, <laughs> you know, maybe they're getting ready for, uh, the, you know, Alex Jones, um, like kind of, uh, inevitability, but something that I do think like has not been appreciated in, in a lot of quarters is like the biopolitical aspect of it, that people just feel now like it's established as like natural, you know, people are like, well, you know, our vaccine pass is really that big of a deal, you know, like, it's like, well, you know, it's like licensing the state, like, you know, whether it's the local authorities or pharmaceutical companies to have like all this information, like that is like power, you know, like and, in whatever and, way you slice and, it, that's a huge amount. your freedom of movement and yeah, your opportunities on- for employment and all kinds of things we've never seen before. And it's amazing. You're right though. It's amazing how, I, how many uh, at least takes I've seen on Twitter from like supposed very left wing people who used to be skeptical of big pharma being like, what's the big deal? Like, yeah, which is, uh, yeah, it's a huge, like, you know, uh, bringing up like Foucault again, like in terms of the biopolitical aspect. I mean, it's, it is like a Foucaultian, like not, it should ring like a lot of Foucaultian alarm bells, I think in terms of just like, you know, I mean it, yeah, I, I think that in a, in a different context, people would be very alarmed by like the idea of just the how naturalized it has been for this information like you know and for that type of uh biopolitical surveillance to just be conducted upon people like as a matter of course you know i think you that can that, already tell ooh. the appetite of getting rid of it is like with a lot of these people that went along with it they're not they don't at at best they don't care about getting rid of it at worst they want it to stay forever because I don't know, maybe you could track like Trump supporters with it. You know, like that's what mm-hmm. people are kind of thinking now. Like people were saying about Canada and the whole trucker thing. We won't get too spun off onto that, but saying like it's good that Trudeau, you know, invoked the Emergency Powers Act. We should cheer on liberals when they go up against fascists like this and like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh God, like. You don't think yeah. that's going to be turned around against everybody against you? Yeah, that's you like a classic later? like pincer move type situation where like, you know, this like specter of like, 
Yeah, like, probably, like, there's, like, a ton of, like, right-wing people there with, like, shit politics. But, like, their goals aren't, like, really, uh, you know, objectionable, like, really in any way. Like, I don't know why. I mean, that's the thing, like, that blows my mind is that, I mean, we're going in a vaccine rabbit hole again. But, like, <laughs> even, like, Joe Biden was, like, anti-mandate, you know, like, a while, like, not too long Once ago. Upon a time. Which is, like, you know, like, what, like how has the Overton window shifted that much? Like, you know. But that's like, also yeah. the psychological not- abuse aspect where I feel like we're being groomed and kind of like gaslit and all these other things like we're almost in an abusive relationship with the structures of society itself now in a very direct there is way. an aspect of gaslighting where like you're not a uh, gaslighting where you're not allowed uh, to sort of yeah. point so out these changes we yeah we don't even know how many people are real on the internet obviously and mm-hmm. how many and, and those who are how, how sincere they're being and so on and so forth so um to me, it's not a surprise, and it shouldn't be a surprise for somebody like me anyway, but I don't think it should be a surprise for anyone, or even anyone who's read my books at least, that um, that, that it's come to this. That we, we've been living in a satanic system for a very, very long time, and we've been worked on and worked over for, th- for hundreds, if not thousands of years by the best. I mean, the worst, but also the best. I mean, the professional sociopaths who are entity possessed with Satan at the top, right? So it shouldn't really be a surprise. And it isn't a surprise that we've got to this point where, I mean, the speed of it is is breathtaking, I agree. And it's hard not to be surprised. Uh, And I get, I get, you know, secondhand surprise or shock such as listening to you guys today about this when I hear on the grapevine, you know, what people are saying, people that I don't know, but maybe I know someone who knows them. And, and, but, but I, you know, I've heard it throughout the last couple of years, this, this rapid, it's like invasion of the body snatches. This is rapid takeover of human consciousness by clearly draconian, uh, not just policies, but philosophies, rationales, you know, mm-hmm. the double think of it, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even want to have to try and sum it up. The madness yeah. uh, of the herd, right? But um, so, so to me, the only way to navigate that is to keep it local. And I do know people who've taken the vaccine. and I do know people who defend it and have even encouraged others to do it. And they're people that I kind of have to work with because I do group work to some degree. They're very few, I'm glad to say. that It's not like I asked. I didn't ask you guys in a way you're still on the back. So it's not as though I actually check and it's, maybe I would if they wanted to stay in my house. Right? Mm. But, but, uh, but it... Um, I was going to say, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult enough to deal with individuals. And I don't, I haven't really been addressing it directly in in most cases because it seems to be futile. I try and feel the waters. But yeah, that's my only concern are the human beings that come into my uh, interdirect interaction with me who are uh, complicit, you know, in a way, in more extreme forms with what we're talking about, then then I start to feel, okay, there's, there's, there's some responsibility I have here. When we're talking as now about, in a certain sense, talking about the whole of society, um, I, I have never believed that there was any hope for human society that had any future besides as a mechanized death trap. And, and I had never really had much hope or optimism about the human species in as as a large group i mean i i can see a few people 
surviving by not um, not submitting to what we're seeing now, whether it whether it will just destroy all the human bodies it takes over, or whether it will actually take them over and they'll live on for thousands of years in some kind of you know cybertronic hell. I don't know, <laughs> but but. Um, yeah, my sense has always been is, is that the vast majority of people uh, do, just don't have that they're, they're too severely traumatized and they're too thoroughly indoctrinated over generations to be able to uh, uncouple, withdraw their consent and to cancel the pacts at, at the 11th hour. And we're definitely at the 11th hour now. Yeah. In the in the so, abstract, yeah, I, I do agree with you. Like, uh, definitely intellectually, I get what you're saying, but I still do find myself continually surprised by things all the time. I find myself thinking, I can't believe this, uh, and then I'm like, well, you know, yeah, I can like believe it, but I still, you know, have that uh, reflexive, visceral reaction of like, this is unbelievable, or like, you know, uh, just surprise uh, all the time. Yeah, like although the bar keeps ending up being lower, even lower than you thought. You knew it was low, but the, yeah, the, the or even if it's of the things they're able to kind of get well, away with. Yeah, even if like you know, intellectually speaking, like if I really step back and I'm like, well, yeah, I can believe this. Like I still, you know, at the immediate level, I uh, you know, I often am surprised, <laughs> um, you know, or often feel the feeling that it recognizes as surprise. You know, like uh, uh like uh, you know, sort of like. Yeah, well, wow. it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a case, isn't it? It's a case of having to. Um, adapt one's theories or one's interpretations according to the evidence, isn't it? So if, if one has a theory or an interpretation that can accommodate the evidence, uh, that doesn't happen. There isn't the surprise. It might, there might be a period of adjustment, and there is for me, for sure, where that, that interpretation that wasn't maybe the one that I went to, it wasn't my go-to interpretation, i.e. that human beings are demonically possessed and uh, it's taking over the whole species and there's not going to be many left. That kind of uh, interpretive model of society is one I've always had, but I kind of had it on the back burner, right? Mm -hmm. But in the last couple of years, it just keeps moving more and more forward. And so with that as my reference point, and, and complementary to that is, is that we, we don't know uh, how many of the supposed 8 billion humans on the planet are, are human or even exist. We actually don't know that, just as we don't know if, if the Americans went to the moon or what. It's actually, it's fairly easy to establish that that was faked, I think, personally. <laughs> but anyway, there's I'm a lot of stuff we can't, we, we can't know, right? Uh, and that includes these 8 billion humans. Now, who are they, right? So we've got the global village now, so we feel that we can corroborate it. Maybe we've traveled. We're, uh, the last few generations have had the luxury of travel. That's all pretty recent. But we still haven't checked for ourselves. And how would you check anyway? I mean, how can you check? Is this <laughs> that's a hologram? A, that's well, this is a, right? Yeah, okay. I was just wondering, yeah, what the alternative would be. It would be, you know, like a hologram or a... Well, entity possessed. Oh, like, yeah, like not really or, human... Or human bodies, perhaps, like but not born as humans, but now yeah, but possessed. Now, oh, yeah, I see. The sort of yeah. walking dead. a kind of they gin, live situation. I mean, yeah, gin, gin can take human form, can't they? Traditionally, yeah, illusionary. Yeah, sure. uh, yeah. I mean, uh, shayatin or uh, you know, malevolent gin can do appear as all, all manner of different things. That's true, including um, grays, right? Including grays, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that's the but, favorite form of theirs. Yeah.
question, Jim, <laughs> and I know that you've brought it up a few times uh, in your writings, Jason, and I don't know. Let's talk about Jim a little bit <laughs> and maybe how it ties into all of this stuff. Yeah. Sure. Um, of course, I don't. Well, I say of course. I mean, I don't have a, a Islam background, so I don't have much um, reference points with jinn. But with demons, demonology, I'm pretty well versed. I think probably more than average. Sure. sure. Yeah, yeah I, I'm kind of with you on that. Uh, yeah. Most of my Islam background, I've sort of gleaned from Khalid, but. I am kind of aware of like the demonic, uh, you know, demonic concepts. And I, I feel like, you know, there's enough crossover between the two. There's I've always felt yeah. that the jinn is like a very uh, useful concept when talking about entities because it encompasses a certain kind of ambiguity about them. Yeah, jinn have a bit more nuance, I think, than than demons because they're, yeah, they're not, I mean, jinn have the same moral, like, range, I think, as, as human beings, basically. Uh, but, I mean, I'm interested in the idea of, I mean, in terms of jinn, I mean, jinn possession in terms of, like, you know, uh, how many human beings, like, on Earth are actually, like, constantly inhabited by jinn. I mean, I think that, like, being ridden by a jinn or like having a jinn sort of uh relate to you or influence you is probably a more common experience than people might think uh in terms of like true like uh like total like ego replacement like by a jinn uh you know that i feel like probably is uh is rarer uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there are all these like accounts. I'm not sure like how much to credit them, but I, I there definitely are accounts, you know, not from uh, the Islamic episteme per se, but uh, from more of like the sort of paranormal universe of like, you know, seeing people who are just like dead, like walking corpses or whatever. Right. I think that even uh, Strieber, uh, whose name I'm training myself to pronounce properly, like had a, a, a like said something about seeing someone who was you know a body without spirit or, or something like that i mean there's another aspect which i guess would be the uh sort of the illusion uh thing where you know there are i mean malevolent jinn are usually classed as being like shayateen or, or satan's you know like there's definitely very bad jinn out there and and satan is is one of them the worst bad jinn <laughs> yeah and they obviously they're known for being able to take forms i mean one very common context of this is like you know uh a popular like Islamic practice, a little bit less popular after the sort of rise of Salafism is sort of a, a grave visitation, uh, Ziyarat, and the Sufi practice of sort of communication with people from beyond the grave. You know, it's an interesting actually sort of thing with the mind-body connection because, uh, you know, uh, the idea is that like, yeah, you know, they are in the grave still, you know, like, yeah, there's definitely like a, a transcendence in a way, maybe not a transcendence because, uh, you know, it's not totally transcendent, but there's a, uh, the spirit in the body, there's a, some break between them. Um, and the appearance of the dead body doesn't mean that, you know, the spirit is dead and spiritual progress continues after death. But at the same time, you know, like they're there in the grave, you know, if you want to talk to them, you go to the grave, but there's a concern that, you know, in order to, actually communicate with these beings is a huge uh, or with dead people with the inhabitants of the graves there's a huge danger in doing so that there you know what you see what appears to you as the like you know uh uh the term is that they take on like the appearance or the the mazar of like something from the the world of similitudes you know uh and uh 
they, you know, Satans are also capable of doing this. So in order to ensure you have to be like very spiritually trained in order to make to, to be certain that what you're perceiving actually is from the inhabitant of the grave. Uh, the metaphor that's like very ubiquitously used is like polishing your heart in the way of a mirror rather than uh, shattering your mirror of expectation or whatever, you know, you uh, actually want to cultivate like your, your heart's mm. mirror so that what comes to you from the grave, you can trust that it's an actual reflection of the state of the person in it rather than, you know, uh, there's even a quote in a, a text that I mention all the time, uh, droplets from the font of life or, or do drops from the font of life. Uh, Reshahet Ainul Hayat by uh, Ali Safi Kashafi. You know, the, the term that's used in, in his citation in that book is uh, the masters of, of the path don't credit these appearances from the grave at all. Like that's not significant in and of itself because Satans are also capable of doing this. You know, it's uh, mm. just, you know, trivial for them to make these appearances. So in order to have a sincere vision, you know, it requires preparation, training, you know, it requires a, a certain type of uh, person to be able to do this in a, in a genuine way. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about a lost art. Hey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of this is based on like attention, you know, and its ability to focus, you know, distractibility is like, you know, toxic to being able to do this. All those like old, uh, you know, Sufi techniques are, really centered, I think, on, on the idea of like this economy of attention that I think mm. uh, your work does bring up in a lot mm. of ways. Yeah. Well, what occurs to me there is, I mean, because I certainly would agree with that about dead people. I've had my own contact with what seemed to be dead relatives, nothing extreme or anything, but through dreams. And I have a lot of very active dream life. Um, but I've always, I would say I've pretty much always been aware of that danger it seemed common sense that if there are entities in the non-physical that they might be able to access the, the husks of previous lives and then and put them on mm-hmm. um i was going to say that so that's yeah i mean i suppose one only learns things by practice so hopefully i have been practicing and, and learning discernment through my encounters with demons, jinn, angels, and, uh, and and dead people. Where I was going with it was, just now I mean, was that because Khalid mentioned the ego and the whole, well, what is the ego? And, and to what extent can we say with any certainty or confidence that the ego or the identity uh, isn't an, isn't a, an implant or something that's been put in us by by jinn or entities. Mm-hmm. Um, that word identity even has you break it up and you have identity, right? And, uh, and as an entity from the id, which is the unconscious, which is also corresponds, I would say, with these invisible realms in yeah. some way. So um, so how do we know? And I think that my own experience as well is is that it's it's not uh, it's not uncommon for us for a human being to have many identities subpersonalities i think that we all do but that we have a much you know a supposedly normal person or socially functioning person uh, has learned to paper over the crowds so they can move 
more or less seamlessly in their awareness from one personality to another and they don't notice. Yeah, they're they integrated. Right? Missing objects or what, I didn't put that thing over there, mm-hmm. right? All that, there's little things that happen to us that are so infuriating to me anyway that, that suggest that best they suggest that my memory isn't reliable and I'm not paying attention, bringing it back to attention. But but more deeply, that I'd say that they, they, they do suggest that that we move from one identity or one personality to the next, and we have many. So those many, they could be the legion that talked to Jesus in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, we could actually be hosts for a multitude of entities from a very young age, even ancestrally, they could have come down to us ancestrally. So so where where is the self in all of that? Maybe the self actually hasn't been able to form mm-hmm. because of all that interference and all of that. Uh, yeah. you know, colonization, all the cuckoos in our nest. Um, in, well, I mean, in, in Sufism, which is really, you know, uh, for most of history, like pretty much equivalent to like Orthodox Islam, you know, it's very Orthodox uh, is- Islamic ideas. There's a, a very strong, I mean, there really is almost an identity between uh, the the self or the, the nafs, uh, the, the sort of a, what's sometimes called the lower self, but, you know, I don't really like it when people like kind of add adjectives in translation, you know, uh, the 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 nafs or the, the sort of self um like uh, and uh and satan you know that these are actually like the the same thing and in fact like maybe even the satan the entity or satan the sort of extrinsic entity is less dangerous or less you know sort of a an allegorized but not allegorized in the sense that one isn't real and, and the other one is but maybe in the sense of like an an ontologically real allegory you know like a a, a sympathetic there's a sympathetic relationship between the, the extrinsic entity satan and the 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 self you know the temptations of the self you know you know you mentioned this whole idea of, of psychism and the sort of uh, uh we, we talked about it earlier the sort of uh valorization of of powers and, and abilities you know there's a uh, this notion of uh, uh rea- or like a showiness you know uh kind of a sometimes called hypocrisy um it's the idea of you know, if you're going to mosque every day, you know, to pray in the front row, you're like the first one in, you know, uh, there's a story about this. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of these stories are, are topoi or types where they just, the, they recur a lot of the time, but there's one where someone says, you know, I was, a, I, I was going into the, the masjid, you know, first thing I was going in the front row, but then I realized, you know, like one day I was late because of, for some reason. And I realized, you know, I, the way that I felt like, that like from the way that I felt when I was late that one day, I realized that I wasn't doing that for a lot. I was doing that so people would see and admire me for how pious mm. I was, you know, and that actually was kind of like a, a temptation that like, you know, sort of saying the Quran in a loud and beautiful way can be, you know, uh, out of like pride can be kind of a temptation of, of this of this self. And, you know, yeah. that's kind of the 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 big uh, antagonist. But of course, you know, there's layers to it because the heart, the, the Kalb or, or the, the, the Del in, in, uh, in Persian, that is like, you know, this uh, cone shaped piece of flesh, you know, uh, which is, you know, very, uh, uh, emphatically, uh, organistic embodied thing. Uh, this is actually, there's a, there's a strong connection between this and God, you know, that is kind of the way to God is through the human heart. So there's kind of this, uh, layering, there's layers of the onion, you know, there's a, the ruh or spirit, you know, and there's the, the actual breath and there's, you know, this idea of the self and, and the heart. So yeah, there's, I think that's, that's sort of a, 
that uh, that tiered system of different selves or uh, different identities is is very much there. I I, I think in, in that, uh, and one of them has a very strong connection with. In the same way that the, the Kalb has that special connection with God, the Nafs or the self is given that special connection with, with, with Satan. Yeah, that's also in the New Testament as well, right? I mean, Jesus calls out, what is it, the Pharisees for kind of, you know, tearing their garments and showing off how holy they are. I mean, there's a lot of uh, proverbs from Jesus, right, that caution against, like, prideful holiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, so, uh, definitely. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. it's interesting. Yeah, I was thinking the uh, just yesterday actually about this a little bit because I mean it's really interesting because you know thinking about like terms of like how things like are traps and like uh you know the kind of like good cop bad cop setup and the like sort of sorting through the spiritual truths and things like that. It is interesting. You know, I was thinking about how much of the Quran really is focused on the way that it establishes truth in a way is by. Uh, like a critique a very like sustained and aggressive critique of the perceived like deity of other beings you know it really is like an anti-entity uh document in many ways you know it's based on you know repudiating the perceived divinity of the certain idols that are being worshipped and it's interesting to think about the the new testament you know or Jesus's gospel, you know, uh, to whatever extent the New Testament represents that and the Quran, like in, in a series, you know, where, uh, yeah, it's a continuation of Jesus's critique, because obviously there are some ways in which, I mean, from an Islamic perspective, it wasn't fully complete because people started to, ha- to have this man God concept where they're worshiping yeah. Jesus as God, you know, uh, and that aspect of, you know, a lot of the critique was received and was adopted by Christians, but that aspect of it was seriously missed and i think that's part of why you know that's a that's such a big emphasis in, in the quran but yeah Definitely. i don't know if that is too far afield uh from from any of this <laughs> but yeah where the yeah the kind of it's interesting that the kind of like zombie like uh body without spirit thing like isn't you know really something that you encounter i mean even yeah i don't know i guess i don't really know too much about like the traditional idea of the zombie like in uh you know haitian culture to really speak on it i i think that they i guess they were perceived as being dead people without spirit and yeah. i mean i guess there's a connection to that and like the idea of the automaton or the robot really there is yes. definitely yeah or the dissociated uh actually in 16 maps of hell didn't you mention jason that there is a, a term for a type of person and i think malaysia Mm, Lata. Yes. Yeah. The Lata, um, who kind of sounds a little bit like the description of like a Haitian zombie in that they are kind of dissociated and highly suggestible. It also sounds like somebody who's drugged with uh, scopolamine, Mm -hmm. you know, um, where you've heard about that. Is that zombie drug? What, the, what's that? the zombie drug was like an elaborate cocktail of like puffer fish venom. Uh, scopolamine was like a more recent thing where like, it would mm. kind of uh, like uh, sort of annihilate your resistance to suggestions. I don't think it yeah. was a component of the like serpent in the rainbow zombie drug, but I uh, think it was it was a component of MK Ultra. They experimented with it, and then in more recent years, there are a lot of like alarmist articles coming out of South America of kind of like gang members going up and doing that, often to like tourists or people like that, where you know they could basically like blow a little scopolamine powder in your face. And then, like, ask you to go to the ATM and withdraw all the money into your account, and people would just do it. 
and stuff like wow. that, or, you know, could enable sexual assault, things like that. And so, yeah, that's one of the more nefarious drugs that, I mean, in like, in very high, actually, you know what? I remember watching um, years ago, there is a Manson documentary. I don't know if you ever saw this, Jason, but it's one of those, it was, it, it was around the time, it was like 1971 or something, maybe during the trial, where it kind of interviews Squeaky Fromm and a lot of the Manson girls. And they're like kind of, they're posing with guns and, and they seem very like still brainwashed by whatever was going on with that. But there are a few like really disturbing anecdotes that are relayed by Manson family members. And it's like, it's hard to know with all this, like whether or not they're totally telling the truth or they're putting on a front. But there were a few stories, like one was that uh, there was a guy who, you know, ran with them for a while, who became convinced on LSD that he wanted to be shot in the head like during sex when he orgasmed and apparently they did do that and I forget if they filmed it but that was something that they almost talked about like it was the grooviest thing like then he (laughs) shot himself in the head like it was so sick but the other thing that I think Squeaky Fromm mentioned was that they were taking a lot of belladonna and I'm pretty sure belladonna is the plant that you extract scopolamine from. So I think what they were kind of uh, admitting to there is that Charlie Manson had access to scopolamine and was using it on his followers, which opens up a whole can of worms, right? On top of like the amphetamines and the LSD that he was using and like manipulating people and whatever kind of, you know, subterranean MK uh, chaos program that, you know, he was a part of, uh, scopolamine was apparently a component of that. And I don't, I, I don't think it was that popular of a drug back then. So I don't know if it's like you could just go and, you know, buy some belladonna from a dealer that seemed to be pretty like inside knowledge and mm. maybe more evidence that there was a lot of like MK influence on, uh, the whole Manson scene. Well, I think to, to pull back to the larger subject here, I think that this, um, suggestibility Again, something that we can all refer to. We all have experience of it. And I think it's key. I think I was thinking, wondering if it could even be connected to what Khaled was talked about a number of times today, which is attention, the quality of attention, and how everything really comes down to that. Uh, suggestibility being the opposite. Right. If we're suggestible, then we're easily distracted and the distractions or the definition of a distraction essentially is a stimuli that, stimulus that comes from outside and pulls us with it. Mm-hmm. It takes our attention yeah. and then it redirects it. And that's suggestibility. And and I'm, I'm very suggestible. I'm aware of that. And I've written about it, particularly uh, Dark Oasis was a story of my falling into, the, into a cult in Canada and that really testifies in specifics, but I think it's there in my other books as well. I think it's there in 16 Maps and in Prison Infinity. And if it isn't in the lines, it's between the lines. Um, you know, what was it I'm exploring? What was it that made me so suggestible to those um, uh, stimuli that I began to believe things just because somebody said that they were true, right? That's what suggestibility is, mm-hmm. essentially. I imagine with the case of this drug, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I would imagine that they don't, that maybe they, they don't just say, go go and take out the money and give me your money, that they'll maybe throw in a reason to, maybe they don't even have to, but 
point I'm making is that suggestibility is, is that you are you're softened up, yeah, you're primed, and then it doesn't take much to say, well, you know, believe in, in, in that you can uh, commune with alien entities through your dreams or just or through meditation, because if you do. You're going to have an epic life like Whitley Strieber, and you're going to be a best-selling author, or whatever else is in that package. Basically, everything. I mean, Strieber's basically trying to sell you on everything. You can be the Ubermensch, right? You can have best-selling books and Hollywood deals, and be a chosen one of the elite. And there's the will to power. To to heaven. Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's so many things like that, you know, beyond like just, I mean, yeah, you know what, I definitely see what you're saying. And so far as like, yeah, I mean, all you need is a slight suggest if you're distractible and I definitely would also characterize myself as being someone who's, who's distractible. And I think Same. that people are more distractible like now than than they've ever been just because there's so many stimuli which really are like you know when we talk about stimuli like if you talk about the the etymological or theological uh you know uh reading then you know yeah like stimuli and suggestions are, are very similar things uh in terms of like their literal meaning like uh a stimulus is like a, a push in a certain direction and so is a suggestion and uh you know i think that uh distractibility yes yeah, is, is vulnerability that type of thing but yeah it was just reading you know and even more than like calling people to do things like thinking certain things like yeah i was just thinking the other day you know i have this uh kind of like recurring uh you know not like a constant but relatively common like dream of like large waves probably something to do with like going to the beach as a kid like having grown up on an island you know and being bowled over by by big waves but i often like dream of waves and i happened to see something the other day that uh, uh J.R. tolkien had like a similar dream uh and he believed that you know he had inherited it in some way from his parents uh that it was some kind of like an ancestral memory of atlantis or something i don't know what he thought but he thought he definitely thought that his son like inherited it from him uh through some kind of uh substrate i don't know but i realized like in thinking about that it's like oh you know i have this same dream as well and i remember like you know i always thought like whenever i had this dream i've always thought to myself oh I must be really anxious about like the instability in my life. I must feel like things are going to, there's going to be an upheaval in my life. And I must feel like I'm on, you know, unstable ground because I'm dreaming about this big wave. But then, you know, in thinking about this again, you know, uh, sort of being uh, stimulated or, or prompted by this thing, I was like, well, why, why do I think that's the case? And I realized like, I probably got that from like Googling, like what does a wave dream mean? And like seeing on some like dream dictionary with like no citations, like, or anything, like that that's what it means and i thought you know i've just made the head of the association for years you know and there's so many things like that you know that like we just like kind of take for granted you know that's just like a guy well, i think you talked about that in in 16 maps of hell jason about how there are ideas that almost get like incepted into the culture and then people forget where yeah, they originally easier. came from right yeah yeah and that, i don't know if this will connect to that because i'm still at this unfinished thought i was having before that, which is that the information age, and when they inundate us with information, that it's so utterly overwhelming because it's that we that we'll just clutch at the first suggestion that we receive. Just give me anything, give me any command, give me any narrative, give me any data point, and I'll take it because the idea of actually having to sift through all of this endless data is paralyzing. Yeah. 
Uh, and that that's really become apparent in 2022 or the last two years because you generally one can't get people to to click on links or follow research they, they've made up their mind they feel they followed the science or whatever it is they've gone to the mainstream you know the kosher sources of information and that's it fact it doesn't checks. matter how many papers you present or how much relatively hard evidence you present they won't look at it they just because they've already submitted to the suggestion yeah uh, of yep. you know the mainstream the, the king the narrator you know the, he who dictates dr Fauci or whatever you know or today even in a subtle way to tie both of what you just said together like how powerful is the first page of a google search result right and we know we all know that they manipulate what comes up on the first page of a Google search result, right? I mean, anybody yeah, yeah. that's in the last, especially the last year or two, that has searched for a kind of parapolitical topic of any kind or anything that's like controversial, the first page now is like fact check, fact check. No, actually, X didn't happen. Fact check, fact check, etc. And you, it's like if you're already somebody like us that's a little bit like critical paranoid, you're going to blow past that and say, okay, get this bullshit out of the way. I'm going to go find the real stuff. But I think for, like you said, if somebody is kind of ontologically chained and and terrified uh, and, do, you know, chained to the dominant narrative, like they're almost, they they are highly suggestible to what like the, the serious scientists or Fauci or the first page of Google basically tells them, right? So they're looking for relief, essentially, from some cognitive dissonance. And I'd say we all are, but yeah. we're using this, uh, yeah. this example. Uh, and so, yeah, they will take it. They're, they're already, they're hoping that Snopes will say, eh, yes, it's false. Yeah, Snopes right? is really So as gone. soon as they see, oh, yeah, yeah. Snopes, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> you I mean, don't I, have to dig any deeper. <laughs> yeah, I see confirmation bias, like, all the time, you know, across the board, you know, I see it, like, where people, like, uh, regardless of, like, whether they're they're uh, blue-pilled normie types or they're, like, you know, more, uh, you know, uh, superficially, like, kind of vigilant, you know, I see people sort of, Re, like doing headline readings or like reading, uh, seeing what they what they want to read. I mean, it's a it's a very universal phenomenon. Uh, oh yeah, it's sure. tempting yeah. for us to do it, right? I yeah, mean, for sure. You know, yeah, put that alarm and just start tapping that red alarm emoji, like when yeah, you see something. Exactly. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and sometimes that, that's helpful to a point, but uh, even then, you still have to be vigilant about that if you're, you know, trying to unchain yourself from the dominant narratives. Yeah, especially like in the minefield that is like the internet where just like there's so much like dross out there that's misleading or like probably design by design to, yeah absolutely by design yeah um yeah yeah and i because i think that the um the overriding underlying agenda is to uncouple us from our own internal guidance system by which we tell the difference between real and unreal like we all have it it's called instinct yeah? mm -hmm. <laughs> intuition right. uh, our instincts, you could say, haven't evolved as fast as a, to keep up with the technology. I mean, that would be a simplified soundbite. So we don't, you know, we've, already, we've lost touch with our instincts in terms of picking fruit in the forest and mind using it on the internet, right? But potentially our instinct could and can extend, if we, if we combine instinct with intuition, sort of higher and lower, it could extend, it can extend to to every moment, every situation, including one that's heavily mediated by our romantic tech. You know, we can, we can, we have a, I mean, they do this with muscle testing, a very simple thing. The body responds 
differently to different products and substances and if it doesn't like them let's say if, if they're adverse to the body the body will get weaker the muscles are weaker and if it if the body is is feels affinity with that substance the body gets stronger well I've, i mean i can't swear by muscle testing but i don't find it hard to believe and i have used it and and i certainly use and i'm using it right now uh the, my ability to to observe and pay attention to my body and my state of relaxation and of well-being in my body let's say to keep it super simple as a means to gauge how close or how far i am from the truth like when i'm speaking but also when i'm listening when i'm uh, reading or hearing i'm, I'm trying to verify like I'm a human lie detector of the universe, mm. not the universe, but of circumstances. Is this, is this real or is this unreal? Is this a, is this a lure or is this a, a real, a genuine, genuine um, lead? Yeah. Uh, and that's, so that's, that's the opposite of suggestibility. I mean, saying I'm suggestible, that's precisely why I've had to, to, to work pretty hard to develop this discernment which is included writing books and constantly rubbing my own nose and my own uh suggestibility like constantly reminding myself how suggestible i am by sorting through the facts and revealing that they a lot of them were you know seeded they were planted and were false and as part of that process letting go of those faulty faculties that have been uh, uh, indoctrinated into me uh, such as the you know the fallen intellect or the traumatized intellect, and falling back more and more on my on my senses, you know, inner inner and outer mm. senses. Yeah, that reminds me of how there's been like a noticeable uptick in the culture among young people of talking about vibes a lot. And right. I, I've read some articles that are kind of like poking some fun at this, and I catch myself talking about vibes all the time. Maybe it's just like Californian brain, but I do actually think that maybe that's in some ways kind of a a reasonable reaction to the kind of strange uh, entity filled like digital hybrid world we find ourselves in, where people are kind of grasping for any kind of tool they can use to suss out whether things are like a threat or negative or suspicious in this like shape-shifting environment we always find ourselves in. I think it's also why a lot of people, I mean, maybe again, this is like a totally LA thing, but I, I've noticed like a huge embrace uh, of astrology as kind of like a rubric for understanding the world and your place in it and yourself and your interpersonal relations. And I don't know, what do you think about that? Jason, like, at, how do you feel about like astrology in this modern context, um, or using it as a as a map to navigate the world? Is because I could see it go either direction. Yeah. Um, so astrology doesn't actually refer to the literal physical constellations. Like I was born uh, under Aries, according to astrology, but astronomically, uh, I think too. it would be me high, too. Both Aries. Oh. High, okay. Interesting. Because right, they've moved. The, the constellation has moved since they designed that system. Mm -hmm. So any kind of rationale for how it works, it can't be, it can't even refer to hard science. Like I used to try to say, well, the mood, the moon affects the tides. So why not the stars and planets, you know, our formation in the womb and so on and so forth. Sure. But that does that wouldn't that that wouldn't wash if 
astrology doesn't really correspond with astronomy. So then, because uh, I, you know, I have used astrology throughout my life, including formative years in my twenties. Uh, I was very influenced by astrology, and um, and and I've proven that it works. But I'm currently at the stage where I don't care if it works or not, or or rather, I don't trust. How does it work? <laughs> I, I suspect an entity because it must, there must be a, an egregore of belief around astrology and that's why it actually works if it doesn't yes. correspond with astronomy, right? Yeah. We're in, a collect, we're in the matrix again. We're in a collective uh, you know, uh, psychic field um, that is cultural but also biological and energetic and who knows how many different layers and aspects there are to it. So, uh, so, so we've sustained something there that's useful as a reference point. It's like a map that's no longer really close close to the territory, but it's close enough that you can still use it. But a part of the using it is you refer less and less to the territory <laughs> and more and more to the map, right? Yeah, that's the that's the trap in it anyway. Interesting. Is you're, rather, rather than keep updating your map, or map will throw it away. Uh, you'll get, you'll end up getting lost, insisting, no, no, the maps, the maps, right. And so I think that's true of all these systems. Yeah, I one thing I did kind of personally notice, like a couple years ago in LA, because I'd meet so many people that really, really believed in astrology and took it seriously, is I got this sense that, like, the more you believe in it and the more you know about it, the more true it is. And I, or I use true kind of in quotes here because. Like, for example, I don't know, it's like if you're a Sagittarius and you are aware that you're a Sagittarius and then you read all about what a Sagittarius is, then it's like, do you subconsciously or even consciously kind of lean into those maybe expressions of your personality that line up with being a Sagittarius? Uh, you know what I mean? And uh, and so in a way, does it kind of, do you make it true by believing in it? And I feel like we've talked in previous episodes before about magic and things like that and how it's often kind of like a misunderstood phenomenon or like occult things and how there does seem to be some evidence like trans historically and transculturally that certain types of magic kind of do quote unquote work if you do believe in it and yeah. Like the mechanism by which it where it's all kind of very murky, but it does. Uh, so I don't know if that's like for better or worse. If people are like kind of like brainwashing themselves into like oh, I'm a Sagittarius, say, but like it doesn't. I mean, doesn't it? Doesn't it presuppose and underline or reveal a dissociation from reality? Because if if you're following belief as a, a tool of empowerment by which you. You, you believe that you can create or at least change your reality by believing that you can. Somehow that seems like a pathogen that gets virulent and it ends up like my brother ended up, he's ended up dead, but his decree was I am what I pretend to be. Mm. And his philosophy was that there is no, it's postmodernism, but he wasn't a postmodernism, he didn't know he was. There is no objective reality, therefore there's only subjective reality and since i'm the subject i get to say you know whether women have 
and penises or vaginas or whatever, you know, we've seen it spread out into all kinds of cultural mutations, but and two and two equals five, you know, fuck you if you're an engineer, I don't care because your patriarchal two plus two equals four is, you know, threatening my the safety and sanctity of my space. Colonial math or something, yeah. The collective madness of that, that's the proof, I would say, the evidence anyway of, of what I'm saying is, is that there's a trap somehow, well, there's a trap in magic, certainly, back to the occultist packs, but there's a trap in in using belief as an instrument of uh, empowerment. Yeah. Uh, as opposed yeah. to the opposite, it's the opposite of surrender, I think, which is... Or submission well, to God. Yeah, yeah, we don't exactly know what it is, I suppose, but I will say, I speak personally, that... Uh, I mean, after several decades on my spiritual path, we're going to call that it's not really a path because you know, can't see it. But um, I would say that the closest synonym for a sense of freedom and reality in my body is despair, actually. For my mind and for my identity, it's like super intense despair. And I think it's because of this. Like you can't actually believe anything and you can't... Uh, do anything to change reality right belief won't change reality if you believe it will then you can create a surrogate reality and live in that mm-hmm. and fine well you've fulfilled your own prophecy but but what 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 is it worth it? i mean is it worth reigning in in hell um, <laughs> like how many people because... at the top are living in that substitute surrogate reality that that has been created in their own minds and so they're they're right. they are kind of dissociated and um and, and they got there before we did so they, they've actually been building the rules and creating it's like a program a computer program we're entering into a simulation we're being tricked yeah with this you know that first promise of all you shall be as gods if you eat this fruit into thinking that we're going to reign in hell we're not even going to reign in hell mm-hmm. we're going to be a slave in hell yeah. yeah, that was a like temporary what's, prince like, on yeah, earth. In Milton, that's like what Satan says, uh, you know, yeah. and like it's a, I mean, it's like a, a very stupid like uh, concept, but I guess which is for whatever reason like inspiring to people as like an idea. Um, but you know, it's not something that's being offered to anyone but Satan. You know, like yeah, or, these, there's yeah. just one job. Um, uh, for yeah, sure. like, yeah. Um, but, and he's like Castro. He never gets replaced. Right? Yeah. But <laughs> I, I uh, did. I, I did. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Do you want to oh, say something first? Oh, yeah. Or, I was just going to say that in terms of like what you're saying about astrology, I think that's pretty consistent with like, you know, astrology is it's interesting because it's become like a, a sort of a sub or paracultural thing where like it's moved out of having like a sort of a central domain or uh you know, where it kind of has this, uh, you know, this liminal uh, sort of uh, status of where it has a certain uh, cultural cachet, but it's also, uh, you know, uh, like sort of considered to be like there's a, another like sort of very dominant discourse of like, you know, it's, it's bullshit. Whereas like in the past, like astrology is taken pretty seriously uh, and the, um, you know, there was like a, you know, a, a lower discourse, you know, a, a less... Uh, maybe authoritative discourse, uh, you know, basically it's switched where like the people who think astrology is bullshit now have cultural dominance and the people who think astrology has some salience have kind of like gone uh, to the sidelines. 
Um, and at least publicly, I, we don't yeah. know if like Hillary Clinton, yeah, well, right, Reagan, well, like that was yeah. treated Reagan, as like Reagan. being ridiculous rather than like prudent, you know, true, like in true. you know, like in the early oh. modern period, it would have been like a, it would have been it would have been treated that way if he didn't have an astrologer, <laughs> you know, like it would have been like, we might, uh, but we might be swinging back because I feel like we have Reagan, present, you know. It, it, yeah, if we have President have AOC one. in like 15 years, like it'll be like, yes, if she like has an official astrologer, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, although I feel like, yeah, it, that's true. Like I, I definitely could see that's true. Like I could see if you'll be like, how dare you criticize us? But at the same time, I feel like it still has that kind of like a uh, status where uh, it's okay that like it doesn't actually correspond to. Whereas in the past, like they would have actually made sure that they were like, you know, they would have done calculations to ensure that like, you know, whatever system yeah. they were using did correspond to like whatever was happening, like with the heavenly bodies. But the idea that this has a relationship with like that there are, I mean, usually not like uh, demonic, uh, but, you know, or uh, necessarily malevolent, uh, you know, one can like make their own deliberations, but certainly that like the planets have like intelligences that rule them. Like that is like, you know, something that I feel like is part of like classical astrology, although it isn't it definitely isn't foregrounded in like sort of contemporary pop astrology. Uh, well, yeah. It's interesting that like Mercury and Venus and Mars were once gods. Yeah. You know? And even like, you know, after like the Greco-Roman heyday, because I mean, those uh, deities had like a different kind of positioning relative to people's like uh, uh, they had a different ontological positioning than like you know, uh, the type of religious beliefs that, uh, for instance, are in like the axial age religions or the, uh, you know, the, uh, um, the Socratic philosophy or the, uh, Abrahamic religions, but still like even after that, the idea that like the planets themselves, like in addition, like, you know, regardless of their names, you know, that they were ruled by some certain, like, uh, uh, potentiates of some kind, like, you know, angels or that they were in some way angels, you know, uh, like, uh, yeah, was pretty standard, um, or, you know, mm. uh, or that they, they were, like, they had a sen- some kind of sentience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That they, I mean, when you look at that hexagonal storm on the North pole of Saturn, it does creep you out a little bit. Mm-hmm. It creeps me out a little yeah, bit. I, don't, <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I don't have any, any difficulty with, thinking of the planets as sentient. I don't know what I'd do with it exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I used to do a thing called divine astrology by this astrologer that I said was influential. And that was, it was kind of ritual magic. Really, but mm-hmm. There were astrological prayers, meditations to each of the planets. Right. So I did used to be more proactive in that way. But I'd say, yeah, I'd say I've always, ever since I believed in astrology, I began to use astrology. I've always thought of that being the real esoteric explanation for how astrology works is that the planets are sentient and they do uh, influence us directly through their sentience and that we are um, amalgamations of well all kinds of different forces and, and currents and intelligences but including here you know, specifically here the those in the solar system so you know we have our, our sexuality and our sex drive is mars yeah and uh, intellect is mercury and so on and so forth so so you could say all those different parts are in this model anyway they're extensions of energetic extensions of those planets that are living through us and that would be theor- theoretically anyway we're getting very theoretical here but mm-hmm. that would be a an example of being possessed by entities that was 
was benign and natural and kind of yeah just natural I say inescapable but maybe it's not inescapable if we if other entities come in and I mean Steiner believed that the planets had demonic uh, entities too that were mm-hmm. kind of angelic hosts and demonic hosts that that re- radiated from the planets uh, but anyway, we're getting <laughs> way esoteric now. Yes. So just, just uh, as always, I'm trying to bring it back to our own experience. And uh, well, we certainly can't experience walking on the planets or visiting them. We can look at Hubble and NASA stuff, but we don't know if it's real. But we can experience the corresponding energies in ourselves, whether or not there's a true correspondence. Um, and I think there is something in that that's maybe not that a million miles away from if you believe it it works kind of thing that if we can apply and if you can apply a an interpretation system in our lives and it 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 does correspond with some direct sensory experience in a way that it makes it more coherent it is that's this is risky it's the same trap really but i'm just kind of trying to frame it in a way. Yeah, I can understand the appeal for people, I guess, uh, in that kind of thing of like acknowledging that there are a multitude of influences that kind of comprise yeah, you. And there's higher powers yeah. as well. I mean, that's really important. Yeah. I mean, it's a persistent concept, even in this kind of secular age in the West. It's uh, Yeah, well, on that point, I think it's interesting. I'll come back to I mean, I've come back to it in my head. Uh from a moment ago, uh, I think it was Kali was saying, maybe it was Dimitri, about the Australian, you know, Reagan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That, um, I mean, who's the power here? Is it the ma- mainstream media who's making fun of Reagan for having, or Nancy for having an astrologer, or is it Nancy and Ronald Reagan, right? Who's who's more powerful in that in that pyramid? Exactly. Uh, because, and, so and. Because I think the mainstream, it does, um, well, it's a tool of the ruling class, let's say, of the ruling elite. Uh, and so it certainly doesn't represent reality and it doesn't represent their own values either. Mm-hmm. That's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, I'm not sure what, what, where I was going with that exactly. Just that I suppose, I mean, the, the, the context here is what we know or think we know about the ruling uh, factions that they do practice occultism. Never mind. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually, it, I, riding it, parts of the cover, isn't it? Exactly. I wanted and to. And they bring probably up, don't uh, practice like. I mean, I don't know what kind of astrology. I mean, I assume that to have an official astrologer, like he must have been doing something more complex than he or she. I forget if it was a man or a woman. Must have been doing something more complex than like newspaper sun sign astrology, which, as you said, oh, yeah, yeah. Ha- is not like yeah, really they were doing whole proper astrology. astrology. You know, yeah. Is there a mask behind the face? Is it a sleeveless ankles? Can a smile conceal a sneer? How do we see clear? Answers can change the question line Every time The truth in confidence tells a lie. What's going on?
the subject of elite political elites doing occult rituals because um i've been doing this mini series of episodes called demon forces which is sort of about the parapolitical history of liberia you know the small republic in west africa and you know if you start reading about liberia you realize really quickly that there is like a persistent issue of allegations of ritual murder and cannibalism, which really like blew up in, if you remember the civil wars in the 1990s, you'd have these like child soldiers running around and they were wearing protective juju amulets that made them believe, according to them, that, you know, would make them impervious to being hit by bullets and things like that. But um, I was just reading uh, the next episode that's going to come out that I recorded. Uh, I sort of covered this very... Uh, kind of dark and interesting episode from the 1970s uh, that's usually called the Maryland County Ritual Killings. And it's a really interesting case study because basically uh, a number of people, and these were these were from the ruling elite of Liberia, which who were the descendants of uh, freed American slaves who came over to Africa in the 1800s and uh, had very close cultural and political ties to the U.S., uh, uh, like seven, uh, actually, yeah, seven individuals ended up getting arrested and convicted and hanged for abducting and ritually murdering and eating a popular singer in Maryland mm. County in Liberia. And um, the trial kind of like shocked the nation and everything. But what was really interesting about it is uh, basically these young political, up and coming politicos were kind of hiring uh, locals with indigenous religious knowledge 
basically what you would call kind of heart men or juju men and were paying them to abduct people. And by the way, there were like dozens of ritual murders in this county throughout the 1970s where the body would be dumped on the beach with organs and parts missing. And eventually they they caught these individuals. Like one was the 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 son of the national chair of like the ruling party of Liberia. The other guy was a congressman um, and was a cousin of like the former president. I mean, these were like high up people that abducted this guy and uh, murder, uh, took out his organs while he was alive and then killed him and ate part of the organs. And they did it expressly as part of a ritual to get more political power. Like they all wanted promotions within the government. And apparently things like this had been going on for some time in Liberia, but it was the first time that people were actually caught and punished for it. And, uh, and stories like that do recur. So like... That is a concrete example of political elites using human sacrifice and magic in order, from their perspective, to gain political power. And it's interesting because it's not the kind of indigenous tribes of Liberia that were that were masterminding all of that. It was the very American-influenced elites that were doing it. And uh, that, like... The next president who would take over in the 80s uh, ritually ate several of his political opponents, including the president he murdered, um, and was feared as like a highly spiritual, like juju master, basically. And um, and it's just interesting, like the the outlook of Liberians about this type of stuff is so different from like Americans and Westerners in that they believe they just like accept as a fact of life that spirits exist and that you can go and basically uh, appeal to them and offer them sacrifices in exchange for worldly power. And it's like the financial and uh, political elites are the ones that have been caught almost hiring like black magic freelancers to abduct and kill people for them to, uh, to benefit in a way. And there's also, of course, like complicated social things like the fear around the rumors that people do it uh, is its own source of political power. And uh, but it, it's worth emphasizing that like they do actually uh, do it. It's, you know, and it, it's a taboo thing that has always been on like the margins of Liberian society, but the elites have engaged in it. So I think like that's that's one very concrete example of um, this stuff happening in the modern era. So I don't know. I don't know if you've you've come across that any of that stuff before. I ha- I haven't. I mean, uh, yeah, that's a smoking gun, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, they were also all Freemasons. They were all <laughs> free. They were all Prince Hall Freemasons because they brought Freemasonry over with them from America. So you know, in, in addition to being like Baptist and Episcopalian Christians and like high level Freemasons, they were dabbling. And there were rumors throughout the seventies. Uh, the 60s and the 70s in the capital of Liberia and other places that children would be abducted and sacrificed in rituals at the Freemasonic Temple. Now, that was never, like, proven, proven, but uh, there was a lot of smoke around it um, because, again, like, these guys in these secret societies were a little more uh, open to the idea. And, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that people in Europe or the United States were not open to the idea, but I think if they did do it, they would hide it much more, you know, uh, 
uh, diligently, right? Well, I think even in a way, like one could say that, I mean, that is often the relationship between like the quote unquote imperial core and it's like colonies, you know, Liberia is in a way like a neo uh, very unique. It is a neo colony. It's it's in a way an archetypal like a, a American colony uh, in some ways. I mean, even like the earliest colonization movement, like in the antebellum period, like kind of uh, was realized like in the creation of of Liberia. There's a there's a strange relationship there, but I think that in a way like the objection of this uh these kind of like ideological uh formations to like the colonies is like a way that they they might like become exposed like uh or is a way of kind of you know it's a way of objecting them almost because or invisibilizing them you know it's like oh you know they're doing that because they're africans you know they're doing that oh i mean that that is all the coverage even the academic even the better academic coverage there's a book called the mask of anarchy which you might find interesting jason and you would too call it even though it has certain conclusions that I feel like are, are like maybe not the greatest, but it does have a, it has like incredible kind of ethnographic history of spiritual practices and things like the Poro society, which is like the main secret society uh, in that region of West Africa and stuff. But even in some of these books that have very like good information, they always end up defaulting to the, well, like Africans are being Africans and like, oh, Africans are believing in conspiracy theories again. Or, oh, they think that wearing this amulet will uh, will protect you from getting hit by bullets. But we actually remember you found that academic analysis yeah. of mm-hmm. tribes in the Congo that believed in magic, like protective magic. And they did like game theory calculations and found <laughs> right. out that, that like communities that used like bulletproofing magic had lower casualty rates than ones that yeah. didn't for like mm-hmm. a whole complicated host of reasons. Well, but at the yeah, end of the day, well, it's, it's like, about, does it work or does it not? And it's it all about work. their interpretive model. You know, I've never been like fully on board. I think we full, it's first like kind of discussed that in our episode about like the Salem witch trials and like, you know, whether in the context of a uh, like Puritan uh, colony in the context of like, you know, Salem, Massachusetts in like the, the 17th century, like making a, a poppet to like curse somebody like, you know, in a context where like everyone believes in the power of these things. Like what is the are the ethical ramifications of doing that? You know, like maybe uh, how seriously should they be treated? And I think my thing with the belief thing is I think it's a much more complicated than that, like the relationship between like beliefs and the influence of reality. Like, I think that, you know, if you know, I think that gin, for instance, like it's irrelevant, like, you know, uh, whether like a, a given person like believes in gin, like, you know, I think that gin like exists, you know, they're an ontological feature of, of the cosmos. I think that's like it's but there is a relationship between belief and reality in, in some way, maybe not like the highest reality, but, you know, some for instance, like the idea of like people creating like a sub universe, like a subjective reality that you know they can influence that you know there's a way uh, that belief like can, a metaverse can, well, yeah I mean, I think a certain it, relationship um i think if you just start with the fact that beliefs influence people's behavior yes. there's no question about that people will do different things according to what they believe and then you just extend that out to groups of people and then you have a cult and the cult well 
there's a different ways in which it can lead to aberrational behaviors like heaven's gate and stuff. So, I mean, has that changed reality? It's certainly changed the reality, i.e. the experience of those members and in a certain yes. sense, everyone else who heard about it that's been affected by it, but it hasn't changed the principles of reality. Yes. And so that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that we can change the principles of reality through belief. Yes, and exactly. If we, can, we can't we're do. We're probably not talking about reality. Yeah. Then. We can't make well, ourselves. Yeah, exactly. True. Like the, yeah. it's, there's levels of there's different orders of reality you know like uh in a way like our belief makes the stock market function but is the stock market real mm. like it, not in the highest sense like no you know we can't in the the magical sense of like altering reality through belief like or through will like uh you know the what the effects that they have are not they don't touch like the highest reality um, I guess this is where um, technology comes and we come back to technology because where technology is so central because if you believe that in a, in a possible technology and you believe it's desirable, this is a lot of prison infinity is about this, then then you can you may be able to create that technology and cre- and technology apparently can alter even uh, the principles of reality as in it can change. Uh, it can interfere with biology, mm-hmm. you know, nano, uh, well, mRNA vaccines and, and nanotechnology, etc. I mean, you don't have to list the, the ways or count the ways that Satan can fuck with the human form, but that's what it's all about. I think that's in the Quran as well, actually, about resting with the human form. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that, I mean, that really is, the, there's a tipping point there. Um, that we're, I think we're on it. We're on the verge of this point where it may actually be possible for belief to, to change the principles of reality, but it's not going to be a good thing. It's not going to be, yeah. there's going to be no yeah. benefits from it. Well, it's going to uh, be like Ayn Rand's objectivist dream realized, you know, and out of Silicon Valley, which all those guys worshipped her, and so did Anton LaVey, for that matter. You know, I mean, you listen to somebody like Michael Aquino, he's kind of talking about like an Ayn Rand kind of objectivism of like i'm the god of my own universe like there's no reality beyond me and Mm -hmm. you know blah 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 and it it, even though that's like that's laughable from just some guy who looks like a pudgy dracula saying it you know Hmm. uh after doing a little magical ritual but when you're talking about like plugging everybody into the metaverse or something like that then you're talking about psychological i mean high level military psychological operations that you know span nations and decades of right yeah Mm -hmm. and you're looking at what michael aquino was really involved in yes even that's a smokescreen for what he was really involved in i think the kind of spooky ooky spooky thing and even the Mm -hmm. abuse of children in the 1980s um at presidio it fits in with the program as we and and you know i don't did you listen to our episodes about aquino no. Okay, because like we discovered some interesting stuff about him that I think kind of really plugs in with a lot of your stuff in like 16 Maps of Hell um, that, you know, he grew up as like a very privileged kind of son of old San Francisco like money, basically. And his mother had been a child prodigy who went to I started going. She enrolled at Stanford at like 15. But before that, she got enrolled in like this longitudinal gifted child program at Stanford run by this uh, professor named Lewis Terman, who was a uh, rabid eugenicist. And he was also the father of Fred Terman, who also became like a Stanford engineering professor. 
and is credited as like one of the two people who founded Silicon Valley. And so his mother was like, his mother also was instrumental in the founding of KPFA. Uh, I don't know if you know that Pacifica Uh, radio. radio Yeah. It's like the ultimate like hippie left wing, like counterculture, the original. Pauline Kale got the star. What's that? Yeah. Pauline Kale. 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 Um, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was very influential, like in the, in the sixties and seventies. And, um, and then she joined the temple of set later in life with him. Uh, his um, so that, I mean, it's Kale. just interesting. <laughs> right. oh, not Paul and Kale, but yeah. Michael Aquino's mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Yeah, I got it. Uh, yeah, please, please don't tarnish Paul and Kale. <laughs> I don't know if I can take it. Um, I was going to say, bringing it to uh, as I like to, as the more the more general, well, not always actually, but uh, in terms of big picture stuff, I prefer to look for principles at work. Um, does it work? Was the question that Dimitri asked, mm-hmm. and 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 is there? Um, I mean, like Michael Aquino, it's clear that he, he had a public persona that seems to be a spoof out of Scooby Doo of the of the Dracularian villain, mm-hmm. uh, but actually he really was a Dracularian villain. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think that that's a microcosm for a lot of this stuff that there's a kind of goofy Scooby-Doo version of it, including the conspiracy aspects. They always unmask the ghost and it's like an old rich guy, right? Well, right. Yeah, I know. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, no, I, so on that, no. so, so it makes it look as though either these kind of rituals or these kind of methodologies are for backward Africans or they're for kooky new age people like Ronald Reagan or Michael Aquino, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you call Michael Aquino New Age, but you get my point. <laughs> and, and, and of course, well, and that's, that would be consistent with whatever systems of knowledge really work, we're not being shown them yeah. for obvious reasons. Yes. Yeah, that's part right. of my, like, uneasiness with the, like, if you believe it works, like, it works, like, because uh, I almost feel like it's interesting, actually, because it's a, uh, sort of a recursive or layered thing where I think that's a helpful way to put it to people who don't believe that it works because it helps them understand it. Like, you know, it's like, are you kidding me? Like you're telling me that like, you know, there's gin, there's magic then, or like that, you know, uh, any kind of magical operation could actually, then it's like, well, you know, it's all about people's belief. And they're like, Oh, okay. I kind of get that. Like, but in a way, you're kind of ceding ground almost to like their framework. I mean, they don't That's necessarily, yeah. yeah, like use the term belief, but it is like kind of will. You know, it's the same. It's yeah, the same kind of. Yeah, but that's. I mean, the guys, you know, masturbating over a sigil or what have mm-hmm. you. Um, I mean, there probably is some movement of energy there, and there could be some actually ontological effects. But anyway, that's the kind of low hanging fruit of easy to dismiss, kind of goofy, lonely, pathetic, magical ritual, etc. But what if? I mean, as I see it, there are there are objective effects for the things we do. Now, if you, if you sacrifice a baby and rip out its internal yeah. organs and eat them, there's no denying that you affected that baby, right? That, that you're having physical effects. But there's also no denying that that's going to have profound physical effects on your nervous system yeah. to do something like that. That's going to transform you internally, or, do, or if it doesn't destroy you, it's going to you know, rewire you in a way that's profound. But what if 
by that same token, I mean, is it a reach to go from there to the, a ritual of that kind, particularly if it's in a group, you know, a coven or what have you, is going to uh, light up or in darken that, that whole system and even the community that it's occurring with, like the ripples from an act or a ritual of that kind could extend out to the whole human organism. Exactly. It's like a virus. Like it's like a satanic kind of uh, virus that like, because you're right, like the shift of consciousness that occurs if you stand around in your acolyte robes with a bunch of people, with a bunch of your peers and do something like that, especially I think like the violation of taboos is something that has like a great power, both, you know, to bind people to secrecy and kind of give people like, mutual blackmail like these more mundane things right um and then also just like the the spiritual or personal psychological change that people go through i mean it's a either you're going to get some kind of i don't some form of ptsd from that or you're already kind of a antisocial personality if you feel not you know what i mean so uh to do something that in in that clear violation of the commonly accepted like moral order. And then you go out into the world as a liar, right? As a deceiver, because you're hiding this horrible thing about yourself. And then that's why I think maybe, you know, you see a, a large recurrence of like pedophiles in all of these like subterranean networks, right? Because that's another thing, kind of like human sacrificing somebody that is just beyond the pale to regular uh, exoteric society. And so that does have, a, I mean, and then the covering up of it. I mean, you look at the the mess of like the Catholic Church and the rot that spread over God knows how long, but certainly at least over decades of covering up every time there was like a pedophile priest. And, you know, God only knows how deep that rabbit hole goes. But uh, you can see how it has like a cancerous effect on like a, a social body, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think definitely, uh, uh, I I think that's definitely true. And I mean, I mean, it really does take like a lot of arrogance to say that something like ritual sacrifice, like doesn't work or is like based because I mean, you're really like to say that you're really calling like most people for like for most of history, like stupid, which is just like (laughs) really not true. Like to say like ancient Egyptians, like they're stupid. You know, like, uh, not really, like, you know, the most, uh, like, uh, you know, learned, the most, like, uh, meticulously uh, sort of studied people in, uh, you know, the, throughout the ancient Egyptian civilization, like, that they were dumb. Like, it's not, you know, like, and uh, of course, it doesn't just, doesn't just end with, you know, that uh, kind of a, a ancient history, you know, it goes, I mean, that same principle is kind of the basis of, of Christianity, you know, there's a, there's echoes of it, even in Islam, you know, and of course, there's really just, like, it exists in an occulted form, like, in our, like, quote-unquote secular society, where, like, every individual, like, under liberal capitalism is expected, like, if the state demands it, like, any one of us is supposed to be able to be sacrificed at any given time for, like, the exigencies of the state, you know, like, if they wanted to right now, they could send us to die, like, uh, in terms of their legal framework, you know, and, you know, so it's still, you know, it's, uh, or, uh yeah. God, I mean, go down the list, like the old people in the nursing homes in New York, uh, you might be able to classify as a sacrifice because they were like willfully set up to die. Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's triage, like, well, I mean, 
in I meant during COVID. Like, I meant during oh. COVID, like sending that, like Cuomo sending them all back to like a death hospital, basically, uh, and that, and then that being used to scare the shit out of everybody to justify all the lockdowns and everything that followed after that. Like there, there's sinister ways to kind of, are, you know, I mean, we talked about yeah. like Astro World in a kind of more broad sense mm-hmm. yeah, um, as right. things that almost could be classified as human sacrifices, even though they're not as literal as like the case in, say, Liberia. Um, maybe they're a little bit more or, you know, I mean, we've talked about 9-11, right? As mass yeah. ritual as like a mass human sacrifice that um, if it was one, it was terribly effective. Yeah. I'm not saying definitively well, that it was, but yeah, if it was I one, mean, that was a very effective well, human it's sacrifice. Good, it's a good example of a, yeah, how you change social reality through a combination of ritual uh, and a manipulation of belief. And I mean, there's a lot of different elements. Mm-hmm. There's the shock, there's the image, the, the impact. And there's the emotional, uh, it taps into or it triggers a huge emotional reaction. Then there's the changing policy, there's the, the propaganda about what happened and why and what we're going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Then there's the changing policies and the whole of society is reconfigured. Uh, which is what they say about wartime. Like wartime is very useful mm-hmm. for social engineers because you can make things change happen way, you know, 20 times faster during wartime yeah. than you can in normal, in peacetime. And we've had two years of, well, they finally come up with a war that is unwinnable, totally unwinnable and can go on forever and doesn't actually do any any damage to buildings <laughs> it does destroy <laughs> the economy but that's part of the plan too yep. so yep. But, but yeah i mean all the changes we've seen pushed through in the last two years we could you could, you could look at that in terms of a ritual that does include mass human sacrifice i mean there are literal deaths happening as a result of uh sign uh, political government social and and medical policies you know that are well, some would say irresponsible if they weren't just completely on board with the thing. But I would say, well, you know, we're consciously uh, yeah. murderers. No matter yeah. what, like, I think whether even, you know, cause the narrative, I think, around COVID, like, changes so rapidly. But I feel like recently, like, you know, there was the idea that, you know, I heard from it was it was that was another thing that was a little bit surprising to me because when the CDC uh, a while ago, I don't even know if they've changed it now, but they sort of relaxed in here in the United States, like their guidelines about like how long one should quarantine. Oh, yeah. uh, it was odd to see people who generally were very, you know, like very trust the experts type people then seeing like, oh, they're, you know, they're lying. They only they want to kill us all, like just to keep the economy going or whatever. I saw, just that like, was weird. You yeah. know, well, like, uh, you know, so that, that was one of those things is like, oh, huh? surprising. But like, um, you know, but then when you take a step back, like, yeah, it makes sense. But you know, so even from that framework, like they, you know, uh, we're willing to concede like, yeah, they're trying, they're doing human sacrifices for something that, you know, isn't really, you know, we're like a, on the, on the face of it, like we're worth it. Um, you know, and even, you know, there definitely is a connection between war, you know, uh, even in the sort of a, the most, fa- one of the most famous contexts, like the Aztec context, like, you know, a lot of the people who were sacrifice like in the in the uh, pre-Columbian Mesoamerican context were people who are like prisoners of war you know they're uh I think they were called their flower wars you know they weren't like direct they weren't designed to I think part of the reason why uh the uh conquest of the Americas was successful is because the model of warfare was so different like from what they were used to because 
the Spanish kind of compress the two of them where they're like, we're just going to be brutal, like performatively brutal, like just in the act of waging war. Whereas they sort of separated them uh, in a way, like into two different rituals, the ritual of like warfare, which is mostly designed towards capture. And then the ritual of, of the sacrifice, which was like a separate kind of thing. Um, and, but you know, they're still like intimately connected that, uh, that reminds me a little bit of that, uh, that anecdote that you mentioned in, in prisoner affinity, which, you know, as I mentioned, is kind of at the forefront of my mind because I, I recently read it. Um, but about, uh, Strieber's involvement with, with the process church, which is like kind of a, you know, a very, uh, prominent bit noir, like in, in conspiracy circles. But, uh, he said something very bizarre, like in an interview, I think with, with Peter Lavenda, uh, who also of like course. gets it uh, really hard <laughs> in this, in this book, you know, he, uh, he said something I'll just I'll just read from from your quote of him uh, in, in the book. Uh, you know, he says that he uh, he went he, he uh, you know, uh, he heard about process um, and then he went to a meeting in a fancy house in Mayfair run by a beautiful woman. And he said a few young men were all around all looking longingly at her as we were. She tried to induce us to join, and then we decided because we were in film school and we had a documentary to make that this would be our subject. And we began making our documentary. Soon we were called, or more accurately, I was called, by a gentleman in the British Foreign Office to come and meet with him. It was rather surprising because how they found me and et cetera, et cetera, I never found out. All right. In any hmm. case, we met with him and he told us this. He said that in their opinion, the process church of the final judgment was seducing young people and taking them to Mexico, wealthy young people on a yacht that they had access to. And in Mexico, they were sacrificing these young people in pyramids in the Mayan country. I, I think actually he, if it's in Mexico, it must be. Yeah. But anyway, Aztec. But And a number of young people had disappeared as a result of this. We finished our documentary and I ended up, Mike got away scot-free, but I ended up being chased. They unleashed dogs on me in their building in Mayfair and ended up having to escape across roofs. It was pretty dramatic. Uh, and, you know, as you point out, like that story is one that he's like retold in a million different forms, like with the basic structure of like, I had to run across the roofs. Like he's told it as an alien abduction. He's told it as like a raid by like, you know, these people by that, you know, it's just like one of those shifting narratives that he tells a million different ways. But Weird. yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story uh, that he has. I don't know if we can credit it at all, but uh, it's, it's an interesting little anecdote, I thought. It stuck out to me. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> sure is. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I guess uh, I think we've come to the end of our time here. We clocked mm -hmm. a good time. We clocked a good three and a half hours. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, well, we, um, we're, uh, we're in very dark uh, waters to end in, aren't we? The human sacrifice waters. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't usually recommend my books to anyone really, but to, to hosts, but um, you might want to check out Vice of Kings on this subject because that's the deepest dive I've done into, into the, the reasoning and the methodology behind sacrifice, human sacrifice with Crowley as my case study. And to, just to finish a slightly unfinished point that um, it suggests I mean, there's the evidence suggests, including what I dig up for Vice of Kings, that there are known energetic principles behind human sacrifice and ritual abuse, and they're being applied like a kind of technology. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think we've touched on it in a number of different ways today, so I won't try and say much more than that. Just that um, uh, there's a lot more to it than just horror stories 
right? The sensational horror stories, and and there it's very hard to get past that because they're so shocking. Yeah, the truth as we start to see it about the machinations of the entity possessed elite, let's say, but in, but not only. I mean, these, these things spill out into the whole spectrum of culture, all the way down to, you know, working class just like Ed Gein, you know, who probably wasn't working for middle, military intelligence when he dug up corpses and made, you know, waistcoats out of their skin. They may just be, an, everybody gets infected. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it's 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 a challenge to get past the, the horror stories um, to the real root cause of this, which is that's via I would say understanding the methodology and the philosophy behind it because it's coherent, it's 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 creepily or terrifyingly coherent. Yeah. Uh, as I say, we've touched on it in a number of different ways here, but the satanic agenda is nothing if not logical right? and yeah and these these people and these groups and these entities they don't do stuff for kicks they might be getting kicks out of it and kicks may be central to the you know the siphoning the harvesting of adrenaline what's adrenochrome. it called adrenochrome yeah yeah, adrenochrome. yeah. yeah that kicks. does seem like a misdirection like oh it's about this thing yeah. that you could synthesize in a lab yeah mm, that's i don't know not, yeah. yeah but yeah, i do yeah, think no, there's something there energy. yeah energy yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. life force right and alchemical um, so psychological transformation through extreme transgression maybe yeah, so not many, not many of us have the stomach for that, and but I think we do need it. I mean, you don't have to 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 wallow in it. Certainly, and you don't have to map every last corner of hell as I've attempted to do. But you, I think we do need the stomach to look uh, unflinchingly at the horror and and through it, so that we can look through it and see that it is sourced in this um, entity-driven and and trauma-induced philosophy and methodology that tragically i mean it it it, it works uh, f- for for a certain uh, part of us as individuals and you know, the part that that wants power and control um it, it it can seem to work for that part for quite a long time i guess maybe thousands of years if we're looking at prehistorical societies mm-hmm. that have really perfected uh, an art that includes art of um, concealment as well, like it's all under under wraps. Now they've they've created a society through these practices in which um, they barely need to do the practices anymore. They've got us doing them in these weird baroque imitations of them, and so disconnected from the spiritual forces that they've learned to uh, control or co-op the lower ones that um, we, we don't have any access to them anyway. Like most people, they're just referring to their smartphones to get their spiritual connection, right? Yeah. So to speak. Really, yeah. it's, got, it's got that The biggest error of all, our phones. Yeah. <laughs> so there isn't much, left, isn't much left for them to do if there is a them, if we're going to talk about them at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's... Uh, I think there is fruit in... There is... Um, well, it's like I was touching on earlier, there's freedom in despair because despair, uh, if the despair is is the result of um, being willing to get closer and closer to seeing the reality of our predicament and of our condition, 
then that's a despair that sets us free. Hmm. I definitely agree. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I guess somebody just uh, bought me some food, but um, <laughs> I think we're going to wind up. I think we are. Uh, oh, yeah. let me, uh, yeah, before uh, we close, let me just issue a, a correction to myself. I guess the process church actually was, uh, in terms of whether we can credit Whitley Strieber's account or not, they actually were based like in uh, former Mayan or, you know, I'm sure there are Maya people there currently, but in, in the Yucatan where, you know, the Mayan civilization was. So and they did practice human sacrifice. So I guess the Aztecs don't uh, own that one. It would be uh, they were interested in, in the Mayan, I guess, uh, civilization. Right. They lived in uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but X-T-U-L, uh, I don't know, uh, for a while they had a uh, operations there. A uh, small village in the Yucatan. Um, Interesting. Very so, yeah. sus. I guess Chichen Itza is also there in the Yucatan. So, yeah, that's oh, okay. very big city. Been there, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't sacrifice anyone. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I lived among the Maya for a number of years, but in Guatemala. Mm. I mean, I didn't live among them exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's cool. Well, we would, uh, we'd love to have you back one of these days, Jason, because I feel like we could just go, like, forever and ever into infinity i guess we could become prisoners of uh infinite mm -hmm. conversation with you but yeah thanks for coming on and uh what's it you have a new website now right landmademan.com all right so people can find all your work there right uh well no most of the stuff's still at the autocult society which i keep up as a as a storage spot uh, and then yeah current stuff it's it's quite minimal because i am working on the land and um, you know, preparing for the end of civilizations. We know it. So I think everyone who's who's thinking right is is at least thinking about doing. Uh, so yeah, I haven't been producing much content, but it's there. It's there. It's, it's fairly regularly updated. Right on. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff on autoculture.com, right? Um, yeah, I've been checking it out for years. So uh, yeah, thanks again for uh, stopping by and. Until next time, dear listeners, mm. stay vigilant. Peace. Circles of the human chain Turning for the wheels of gain A system with the power of its own To draw
Draw blood. 